Coming to you from the TLD studios in Temecula, California, it's the Whiskey Throttle Show, taking you deep inside the lives of the legends and leaders of our sport. This week's guest is brought to you by Yamaha, the leaders in the power sports industry. Motocross bikes, street bikes, adventure bikes, side-by-sides, quads, boats, generators. Yamaha sets the standard. Yamaha revs your heart. Method Race Wheels, the strongest, lightest, fastest wheels in off-road. Method dominates the off-road market with wheels for your truck, sprinter, Jeep, or UTV. Go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle for 20% off your order. Troy Lee Designs, built for the world's fastest racers. TLD blends elite level protection with industry leading style and performance. Moto, bike, helmet paint, casual wear, whatever your passion, Troy Lee Designs is waiting for you on the next level. Nihilo Concepts, enhance your riding experience with superior products like the Start Stop Conversion Kit, Fuel Pet Cocks, Frame Grip Tape, Lever Grip, Grip Donuts, Secondary On Switch, Billet Foot Pegs, Billet Throttle Housings, and so much more. The Hilo Concepts produces exceptional products, all of which are made right here in America. And by SKDA. SKDA is the ultimate destination for exceptional motocross graphics, customer service, and artistic excellence. Trust them to elevate your ride and showcase your individuality on the track, making every ride an exceptional experience. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to another Whiskey Throttle Show. Uh, today we've got a really cool guest, a guy I've known for a long time, but who's been around a sport uh, way before I was around. And man, got a lot of history in this uh, in this industry, and I'm stoked to get to it. Ron Heben, uh, I always call you Slicer. I don't know if you still go by Slicer is acceptable. It's still acceptable. Acceptable, Good. yeah. Uh, well, Ron, welcome to the show, man. It's been a long time that uh, I've, I've known you, and you've like I said, you've been around since way before I was well, thanks, Peg. I actually, I'm a, I'm excited to be out here because you know I don't know why it's taking you so long for as long as I've been in this industry to finally welcome me out here. You must be running out of talent. Well, you know, right? I I'm looking at guys who are probably going to die soon, and I thought I better get Ron in. You know, good because you know <laughs> it, that that happens. You know? Yeah, no, but uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity to come out and share some of my history with the with the of the industry. Well, so you know, obviously, we do a lot of riders and mechanics and managers, but um, and you fit into several different shoes there, but just also people that have good stories. And you've been around and, and in, involved directly with so many cool facets of the industry that I, I'm anxious to talk with you about it. Uh, we start every show with the Method Race Wheels front end chatter. You folks who are familiar with that, um, get over to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle, 20% off on anything you buy over there, which is a pretty good deal. Uh, we're stoked to have them on board. You've done a, you've done a lot. You've been uh, a trainer, which I didn't know. That was that was new to me. Uh, mechanic, team manager, team coordinator. You're now doing a, a like VIP stuff for road racing. What's the hardest job in the motorcycle industry? I don't think there is a hard job. I mean, they're all challenges, no matter what position you have. I think that as, as you, as a racer and stuff, you you start out riding motorcycles and you become you get the passion of riding a motorcycle, you know, and then the only thing that's unfortunate as you get more and more involved in the industry, if you started out riding motorcycles because you enjoyed it, the more responsibility you have, the less time you find to be able to go out and ride that motorcycle is how you got into this sport. Yeah. Right. So, um, 
you know, I've always welcomed challenges, you know, and, and sometimes it's easy to become complacent, like, I'll just, I'm good. But different things are presented to you. And, you know, sometimes, obviously, uh, my wife's been really supportive of me and my industry, you know, what I've done in my career and, you know, talk it over with her and the kids and go, okay, are we ready? You know, are we ready to make that transition? And she's always like, what? that's what you want to do. Go for it. You know, so that's kind of how we do it. Yeah. Motocross wives are special. They, they definitely have to be able to, it's kind of like, uh, it prepped my wife to be a fire wife, right? Because I'm gone quite a few days a month and they have to be able to be self-sufficient, right? Because in moto, you're gone a lot. Yeah. Well, in the days of box fans, you were gone sometimes a couple months at a time, mm. you know, and uh, the good part, of, the good thing about my wife, Sandy, is that we met each other at Yamaha. And so she's already familiar with the industry and the motorcycle world, right? Mm. So uh, she kind of knew it going into it. What you would say between mechanic, maybe testing technician, team manager, uh, there isn't one that's really much more difficult than the other. They all just have unique challenges. Yeah, I mean, I've never been a mechanic, but I mean, those guys, there's pressure on them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like any, like you're being a fireman, different levels of stress depending on what your challenge is on that given season or or that given day, right? And I always have always had the mindset is that fire drills are going to happen no matter whether you're a mechanic or you're a team manager or you're a trainer, no matter what you're doing. But the more you prepare, it minimizes how big that fire drill is. Yeah. And so I, I was really fortunate to be, to work with a lot of great mechanics that were already on board, especially when I started at Yamaha, you know, the guys like Keith McCarty and John Rosenstill and Jim Felt, just to name a couple that had already been seasoned mechanics. Mm -hmm. And so just as I kind of would try to pass down some of the things that helped me prepare for whatever job I was doing, those guys did the same thing too. Yeah, like, hey, you know, you're just not gonna go to the first race and, oh, I need gas, I need this. I mean, checklists are are so invaluable no matter what you're doing. Yeah, all of these positions require some succession planning, right? Like you've gotta train the next guy because uh, it was funny, we had Ian Harrison on last week, and he was talking about how Roger, they'll, they'll encounter problems with a with a manufacturing process or something on the bike, and Roger go, oh, yeah, I, I we had something like this back in 79 or a da-da-da. It was, you know, it's like the same problems just keep coming up in different forms, right? And that ex- really experience is the only way you realize you have solutions for them. Yeah, and I, I think it comes, a lot of it also is from your work ethics. I, and in one sense, I... You know, because I am old, you know, and you got old school, old school procedures and the way you want to do it. And, you know, younger kids today, it's like if I can't do something on my cell phone and I can't text it, you know, I'm not interested. It's like you just that's not the way it's going to work. And uh, so trying to get them to understand is that you some things you just can't cut corners. You, You know, being a racer yourself, it's like. In order for me to win, not it's just not winning the one race to win a championship, I need to win a lot of races or be consistent, make something good out of something bad, not just give up. And and that's the same mindset is to get this point across is that you understand is that we go to the first race, you go to Anaheim one, you win Anaheim one. All right, we're we're there. Yeah, pump the brakes. 
you know, the next race may be a completely different yeah. element of what we're going to be introduced, that we may be introduced to. Yeah. Or vice versa. Yeah. It could start bad and exactly. uh, we've seen it go both ways. Uh, well, that's our Method Race Wheels front end chatter. Uh, we appreciate their support. Go over to Method Race Wheels and get that discount, 20% off. Uh, and also check out whiskeythrottlemedia.com. We've got all kinds of content over there. We're launching a new off-road segment. Uh, if you are folks into dual sporting, off-roading, uh, there really has been very little, particularly covering West Coast racing, and uh, we aim to fix that. So check that out. we got new merch, our forum over there, the distillery. Um, so check it out. Our guest is brought to you by Yamaha. So, Ron, tell me about where you grew up. Pig, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Oh, did you? That's right. I thought you were a Southern California guy. No, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. On the small, uh, small corner of the state there. On the, on the Pacific side, actually, just north of Pittsburgh. But uh, I grew up, you know, just a small little town. We got introduced through my brother riding motorcycle mini bikes, which, you know, there's a lot different mini bikes with a Briggs and Stratton engine than yeah. today. Uh, got introduced uh, again. That's, you know, early 70s when motorcycle was just starting to take off. Obviously, the West Coast is the epic center for for, for motorcycling yeah. in the United States. And, you know, things would trickle east in Pennsylvania. We we would get these things after. And, you know, we we lived to, to get cycle news. I mean, it wasn't like it was an online subscription. You would wait till... Tuesday or Wednesday when it would come in the mail or to the dealership yeah. you know you get there and you read and either see if your name was in the results for a race or what happened with in the Nashville whether it be in Florida or whatever you yeah know? so racing motorcycles I was fortunate that when I turned 16 and I I was trying to find it is I had my original professional license that I got when I was 16 from the AMA really you still have it I have I can't find it because I'm old but I, I have it someplace okay but, uh the Suzuki dealership where I was working at, these guys all chipped in. I think it was a hundred bucks at that time, and they paid for my license to become a professional racer. Obviously, I was still in school and uh, played different sports in school yeah. and stuff, and kind of transitioned. And then started to realize that you know if we were ever going to do anything, my one good friend Jeff Bonacera and I, we always kind of traveled and raced together. His mom and dad were really instrumental in in getting us to the races. Okay, uh, we'd go to Race of Florida series. And there I was introduced to, I called my Florida mom and dad. We'd stay at their place. We would race the Florida series. And, uh, you know, we would just get our ass kicked because we had, we didn't have really any sand to ride in, in Pennsylvania. Well, who, who, so who, what was your first bike? You have like a step through uh, Honda? What would I did? Yeah. Well, my first bike was a little Indian okay. bike. And then I had a, uh, uh, a trail 90 and then a, you know, moved up to a Suzuki Duster 125, and that was a motocross bike for me. And then okay. the Suzuki came out with their TM models, right? The Champion, and then the, the TM 400 was certainly an interesting bike to ride. Uh, and then, <laughs> that's uh, that's a polite way to describe yeah. it. <laughs> uh, Husky KTM's, and then really started working at the Yamaha store and, and started riding when the YZs came out. Okay. Uh, I forget, early 70s, mid-70s, I guess, right? Yeah. So what did you do as a kid? What other sports did you play? I was kind of a, you know, we played every sport. When yeah. you're a young kid in those days, you in when you have seasons like you do back east, is that wintertime you played basketball, basketball springtime yeah. you played baseball, football, all those different things. So I, um, my, my, my parents were really supportive of that. My brother played all those same sports. And so, you know, if you have an older brother and he's doing this, 
he's four years older than me, Marty. And, uh, we just would, you know, he's doing this, I'm doing that, you know? And I think that by, and it happens in a lot of sports is that the younger, younger sibling always can catch on quicker because he's He's chasing big brother. He sees what's happening, you know? And that kind of helped me at racing as well. You just have the one sibling? Yeah. Okay. Um, did, so when you guys got introduced, did your folks ride, your dad ride or? No, my mom and dad are basically blue collar workers. My dad worked in Westinghouse for 50 years. My mom was a, a homemaker and, and, you know, traditional royal home family, yeah. you know, and, uh, good for you. So that was okay. But I, as when I was, I was probably one of the first persons in our, in our school, in high school, not only did I do sports and stuff, but I would get off and go work at a Suzuki store you know, half a day and established a work program, which was something that was unusual at that point. But that's kind of, and the same thing, kind of how it got me going. And then I'll tell you a little bit later on how I ended up getting myself out to the Okay. So did you, at that time, were you following pro racing? Like you were, you were, you wanted to ultimately get there or? Yes and no, Uh, because I really didn't. You know, it, I couldn't do it as a full-time ride everything. I mean, we, you know, even though you might have been sponsored by the local dealership, uh, we really didn't have expenses and all that. Yeah, we didn't really have the resource to do it full-time. Yeah. So you worked, and then weekends you race. Gotcha. And you were doing just kind of your district stuff? Yeah, we did. Pennsylvania. We did Harris Grimbles and stuff, and then it, we, we traveled to New York, Ohio. We really in Pennsylvania was the... And West Virginia were the kind of the places where it had the the premier races, right? And then when there was a local, let's just say a, a Trans Am or Inter Am or a, a national, we would enter those and you know go and see how we could do. It. So you did a little everything. You ever do like the Blackwater? No, I never did. My brother did Blackwater. I never did it. But hair scrambles, we used to wintertime was awful fun. Yeah, wow. so they seem fun. Yeah, and it's a shame like. Um, you know, out here on the West Coast, off-road is so different, you know, but the East Coast stuff with the trees and big grassy fields, they got some neat places. Oh, I mean, and there's, there used to be a lot of places to ride. I mean, no different than out here. You just go out of your house and go ride. And I think that was part of the enjoyment. You, it, it wasn't like you had to load up your truck and go away. Yeah, that's a bummer. Uh, and that's uh, just urban sprawl, right? I mean, it's going to happen. It's happening everywhere, but um, right here in Temecula. I mean, all of these hills around here that are now covered in houses, we used to be able to just yep. take off and go ride. So um, something the younger generation will never understand. So who were kind of your moto her- heroes uh, when you were a kid? And- well, when I was, obviously, I think that at that age, Roger DeCosta, you know, was... Just an amazing person, not only what he could do on the racetrack, but just how he handled himself off the racetrack. I remember, I I couldn't find this one, Ping, but in 1974, we went to Coketown, Ontario, which was a Trans Am. Okay. And amazing track, amazing natural train track, like Unadilla used to be, right? Okay. And uh, the Suzuki factory team was there, Roger was there. Got his autograph. That's actually where I met a good, my really good friend, Marty Tripes, was at that race. We were racing the, they had a 500 support class. So we were racing a 500 support class and we were on one side of the hill and all the factory teams were on the other. And that's when Yamaha, uh, the Jones brothers was the Yamaha factory racing team. Okay. So that's when Marty was part of that program, but he was racing against 
you know, all the top Europeans that came over. Roger was so stoic. Still is, you know, like he just doesn't, he could be upset or happy and his, his demeanor doesn't change more than a percentage or two, right? I think that's where you, he's so unique, you know, he just, he just can handle himself and that's where you're, you know, you're talking about preparing for a fire drill or something like that. He's like two or three steps ahead of you, yeah. and that's how, that's why he was so good on the racetrack. Hmm. And he seems like, um, in that same vein, he can just, he doesn't let his emotions ever control him, right? Like, he always is able to just think it through and make kind of logical next steps, yeah. right? Whether that's in a race or solving a problem with the bike or whatever. But it's a lot easier to say than to do, you know, uh somebody smashes into you or chops you off and you want to just get like mad and go after him. And I just picture him going, okay. And then logically thinking through like, what's the smartest thing to do? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that sometimes, you know, when they're in, in those days, they race 40 minutes plus two laps. Right. Mm -hmm. And so some of that is that if you get yourself too excited, too worked up too quick, you know, you're going to use all your energy where it's like, if it's somewhat earlier in the race, I still got 30 minutes. There's still a lot of time yeah. for me to do what I need to do and accomplish what I've set out to do. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, any of those, who did you grow up riding with and did any of those guys continue on and stay in the sport? Like any... No, not really. I mean, my uh, my when I first started out, I mean, there was some iconic guys that, that race and not too many people are going to know it, but like Jay Gons was a, a CZ guy, one of the first factory C got CZ guys that actually raced in New Philadelphia, Ohio, which was one of the very first interams when all the Europeans came on. He was one of the icon Americans, right? Okay. Uh, another guy, Greg Davis, who uh, we grew up with, a guy that was a couple years older than us that we looked up to because he had already got into some professional races. And then obviously my good friend, I went to the races a lot with Jeff Bonacero. We but we, you know, we were almost like weekend warriors. Gotcha. We we did it, but we really didn't have the means to commit ourselves to doing it full time. Was like Savinsky and uh, Tony D. Would that have been that era? Too? Yeah, it was. But they were on the east side, you know. So John Ayers. I mean, I, I think a lot of people know John Ayers. John Ayers was a, a really good hair scramble racer, and decided he wanted to start racing motocross and he raced Husqvarna's and I think he raced and ended up riding Yamaha's because he got a, he kind of met Bob Hanna and John Savisky and Bebo and those guys. And, okay. you know, he had a great career, but, you know, to say that we had a, you know, a Marty Tripes or a Roger DeCosta or, or, you know, a guy right in our backyard, we did. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, well, that's interesting if someone else came from New Philly. Not just Brock Sellers. Yeah. Well, no, I'm sorry. He raced at Newville. Oh, raced Newville. He wasn't yeah. from there. Not okay. from, not where Brock's from. So there was a, a Trans Am in New Philly, though? Interim. An interim. Interim. This is probably like 1968, something like that. Were you born? Were you running? No. No. Okay. <laughs> not, not quite. So, not quite. Um, okay. So how did you get um, connected with Marty Tribes. You said he was your buddy. Like, did you know him from kind of hitting some of the races or? No, we were. This was a part of your career I did not know. You no, were Marty is... Tribes trainer and I'm going. That's right. Wait, what? That's right. Marty okay. Tribes trainer. People, Which... they chuckle. <laughs> I thought you have to. 
Easy, easiest job in the world. Yeah. You just go, uh, hey, uh, do more. All right, you're not going to do it? Okay. We were at that Copetown race in October, no, late in the year, and all of a sudden, and we had stopped in New York, and we had bought some fireworks, and all of a sudden, someone shoots a bottle rocket. Like, we were this big valley, right? Gentlemen, bottle rockets coming over, kind of toward us. I'm like, oh, that's something. We have bottle rockets, too. <laughs> so we go. So we're doing this for on and on for a while, shooting bottle rockets at each other, just not really getting. And you don't even know who it is. I have no idea. Okay. So we're like, hey, well, let's meet down at the bottom, right? Okay, we got down. And here it is. It's Marty, right? And, you know, and and you know who he is. We know obviously. who he is. Okay. He has no idea who us we are, other than people throwing bottle rockets, shooting bottle rockets at him, right? So anyway, we meet, and uh, he becomes good friends with Mr. and Mrs. Bonacera and, and us and all the local races that we would go to. We'd all, he'd either come over to our place, and he would stay, hang out for a few days. And he always used to say, he been, you know, you need to come to California. You know, if you want to keep riding, you need to come to California, right? So put it off, and then finally... I decided, it's like, okay, if I'm ever going to extend my career, because if I wanted a career in the motorcycle industry, whether racing or in the industry, I felt that I needed to be, I needed to move to California. So one December, I just loaded up my van with everything I had and headed out. And then in, I was in Yuma, Arizona, and I called him at a truck stop getting gas. I said, hey, Marty, how you doing? It's like, how cool. What's up? Like, I'm just adopting. He's like, when are you coming out? And I was like, well, how far is it from Yuma to your house? And he's like, oh, it's like four or five hours for us. I said, okay, I'll see you then in like four or five hours. And he's like, what? I go, you told me to come out. And he's like, well, you could have like communicated this, you know, ahead of time. So anyway, he came out and welcomed me in. And so I wanted to, he was riding Hondas at that time. Okay. This yeah. would have been then 1979. 79. Okay. Right. So. Marty's riding Hondas. I didn't have a bike. He had, you know, Honda. He was a factory rider for Hondas. He had a boatload of stuff in his garage. So he's like, hey, I need somebody to ride with. And I was still, I could ride. I wasn't as good as Marty, but I could still keep him honest, right, sure. on the racetrack. So he's like, hey, you know, do this. And he goes, why don't you, why don't you just help me get ready for the season? You know, you can be my trainer, you know. And you got to remember, Marty's, you know, he's not like a, He's not the littlest guy, right? So I said, okay. And I was like, that's good for me. You know, I'd pay my way, just keep me my room and board. I'm good with that. Sure. So anyway, I started doing all that stuff and we started training and Marty was on one of his many comes back, comebacks again, right? So we would ride and we played racquetball quite a bit and did different things. And, uh, and it was always kind of interesting. My one of my, Funniest things with him is that, you know, he was like, I got to lose weight. And he was like 200 pounds, 185 pounds. Which, which he, his frame, he would have, what would have been a good weight for him? Yeah, what? One, uh, 160? No. I mean, oh, no? Marty's a solid guy. Yeah. He's like, you're not going to get him down to be like a road racer or something. Right. Or, you know, or like these, these guys today that are no, no body. Horse jogging. Right. Yeah. So we, we used to work with, uh, John and uh, Rita Gregory from JT, right? Yep. So Marty's always like, you know, I can't lose any weight. I'm just, and he's wearing like size 36 pants. So I had him one time take his leathers, his, his pants, right, and put 34 labels in them, right? And we go to the race and he's, put, he's like, you know, God, these are cut. 
I go, yeah. He goes, what size are these? I go, Marty, they're 34s. He's like, no way. You know, it's like, this is, he was so happy. He's so pumped. I mean, he's eating donuts and training and doing whatever he wants to do. And he's like, I'm down to a 34 waist. Was he really doing much off the bike? I heard he didn't like to do much work off. No, nah, he wasn't. We, he would ride a lot, right? Is that what I heard? Oh well, yeah, I mean, you never you never saw a guy wear out a pair of boots faster than Marty because you have his his style was riding on the pegs. Yeah, I mean, in that time, the Alpine Stars or whatever boots they were wearing just didn't have the technologies that they have today. But he would wear out a pair of boots in you know one weekend, basically the soles. Jeez. So, but natural ability, God, that guy was he was he's phenomenal. Everybody said, even Hannah said. He was a guy, Marty Tripes was a guy like, if he wanted to beat Bob, he could do it. Yeah. He was one of those guys. Well, we were, he, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he would, he got mad at Honda because something about the frame or he wasn't happy with management. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, if I win, it makes Honda look good because I'm not winning because they're not doing what I want them to do. Right. But then he decided he wanted to buy some property up in Hamol. Uh, yeah, how old? And they went to the bank and they're like, well, you need to get, you need a five or $10,000 deposit to do this. And he's like, all right, I'll bring back next Monday. Oh. And I'm like, how are you going to do that? Like, we go to Red Butt. I get my bonus. I'm going to win both motos. Do it. And he would do it. That's like mind over matter that he was that good when he, put his mind to it, he could do it. And right. so we, I asked Marty this when he came on the show. I said, well, if you were capable of that, because I've heard story after story of that type of thing. Yeah. Right? When he when he decided he was doing it, he could do it. I'm like, why didn't you do it every weekend? You could have been, you know, yeah. You know, he just kind of like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Marty was such a good giving guy. And it's this happens in our sport a lot, is sometimes your best friend is your worst enemy. Mm. Because, you know, I've seen this happen so many times that they're they're paying a guy to be a trainer and he's kind of his buddy. So, Ping, we need to go, we need to go do this, 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 this today if I'm your trainer. And you're like, hey, Slice, I don't want to do that. Let's go to the mall. I'm going to buy a pair of shoes. And you're like, well, wait a second. You're paying me. If I say no, I don't have a job. Yeah, right. We're going to the mall. Yeah. With those shoes, right? You know what? You're right. We'll walk the stairs at the mall. It'll be good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of what happened. But like I say, M Marty was, I mean, and I think, like like you say, Bob, there's guys that he feared. He knew that if Marty really just pulled the stops out on that given day, he could give them everything he's got. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I heard you were training Marty Tribes, and I had to giggle. I'm like, well... Uh, that's a tough job. Yeah, it was something. He was, uh, but the guy, you know, it's like any athlete, I think. They can be good at anything. You know, if he went to, we played racquetball or we played golf or we, whatever we did, you know, if he put his mind to it, just was, he could do it. Yeah. I think there's something, I say this all the time, people are probably sick of me hearing it, but just like you said, you played all these different sports as a kid. I grew up in Montana, it was the same. During the winter, you couldn't do anything outside. It's okay, but it's basketball season. I was on the swim team. We did karate, whatever you could do inside. And then we'd snow skied. And then in the summer, soccer, football, you know, I didn't do baseball for whatever reason, but BMX, motocross. And I think that that helps round you out into a better 
all around athlete, right? I agree. I mean, I think today's world is that, you know, I, I hear it all right with some of my neighbors now. They're, you know, they're playing baseball. They're And my, we had the same situation with my son, Danny. It's like, you know, we got caught up into this. It's like, we're playing spring ball baseball, and then we're summer ball, and then it's travel ball. And it's like, and then they get to school, and, you know, it's like all sports condition you for everything, right? Yeah. But they're like, they want to be so specific. But if you're really good, you can play all those sports. Yeah. They all contribute to whatever your main objective is. Yeah, I think you have kids burning out too quickly, and this applies to motocross as well. I mean, what are they, sixth, seventh, eighth grade? They're pulling out of school and going and uh, staying at these training camps. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with those places, but man, to to say I'm done with, I'm not going to do any other sports but this at age 12 or 10 or whatever it is, man, not, not only are you taking a big gamble that that one thing's going to work, because it is a huge gamble, but like, man, you're kind of cheating your kid out of a bunch of other experiences and things. Sometimes who's driving it, you know, it's sometimes they get around and the, the, the parents are sometimes are pushing the, you know, the agenda or sometimes the, 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 the kid itself is, he sees other people doing this. And so that's what I got to do. You know, if I go play basketball in this fall, it's going to take away from me playing baseball because these other guys are all playing in a travel ball or vice versa, whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I, again, I just think that you see some of the, you know, multi-talented athletes that have played multiple professional sports. If you look at their amateur, their, when they were growing up, they were good at everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's another story for another time, but I think there's something there. Um, so the following year you moved into a technician position with Yamaha. So, and you were there 80 and 81, uh, working with guys like RJ, Bruce Ogilvie, who, uh, pretty heavy off-road guy out here, you know, part of that program. He was a big name out here for a long time. Yeah. A little before my time, but I hear his name all the time come up. Chuck Miller, who was a longtime Honda guy, but also a really good racer, Larry Rosler. Um, what was your role there? And, you know, if you're working kind of as a mechanic, had you done a lot of mechanic stuff before? Did you just sort of step in green and they're like, hey, we'll train you? Well, pretty much. I mean, it'll go back to Marty Tribes. I was working at a dealership in San Diego and this guy, Bill Bell called me, right? And he goes, Hey, you know, we're starting at Yamaha in 1980. This was in the fall of 79. He's like, Hey, we're starting an off-road program. And I was talking to Marty Tripes and then he says that you're a really, you know, you'd be a good candidate to talk about a position there. And I'm like, okay. And understand you got to know Marty's always screwing with you. So, I had never, I had no idea who Bill Bell was at that point, right? So I'm going just, I just figures Marty just called, had someone call me just to screw with me, you know? So I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, Bill, hey, I'm, I'm your guy, you know, da, 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 da. And uh, t- waiting for at the end of the conversation, he'll go, hey, just let you know, Marty was wanting me to screw with you and that's it, right? So we got all done a conversation. He says, hey, when can you come up to Yamaha for an interview? And I'm like, oh, I'll be there Monday morning. You know, well, you tell me when. I get all done. And I'm like, oh, you know, I really was, is this, so I called Marty. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, no, that's for sure. That's real. I'm like, oh, crap. So I call back to Yamaha and I get a hold of Bill Bell and I go, hey, I, I need to apologize right off the bat because 
I thought Trice was pulling one on me and I didn't know if you were a real person or not, <laughs> you know, so I am interested in this position for sure. So I came up there and I interviewed and they were starting, the Yamaha was starting an off-road program, which was two, two disciplines, off-road East Coast, ISDE, National Enduros, and then Baja and, and, and Desert Racing, right? Yep. So... Bob Oliver, who I worked with for a number of years at Yamaha, he had just started the week before me. And then I goes, I was hired to be desert mechanic, Larry Rossler, Jack Johnson, and we had an entourage of riders. And, and they also, when there was non-conflicting events, Bob and I would always work together. I'd either be doing Enduros or he would be doing Baja and stuff like that. And Bill Bell was the, the department manager at that time. So... Interesting is that I had worked on bikes and I, if I, I really wasn't like a noted mechanic, like, you know, some of the guys I spoke about earlier, but I could know my way around a motorcycle and stuff. And so what was, what was kind of interesting is that I'm from Pennsylvania. We don't have a desert in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Right. I don't really do. So I like, okay, Bill, what do you want me to do? He goes, well, our first race is the Parker 400. I said, one, where's Parker? <laughs> to like what what am I gonna do right yeah so he goes well your rider your main primary rider is Larry Rossler fortunately Larry Rossler phenomenal racer phenomenal guy to understand and I went called him up we met and I said hey I've never even been in the desert you know <laughs> I don't even, I don't really know he's like Larry I don't want to bum you out but I'm not a real good mechanic I've never even been to a desert but I'm your guy for yeah. this event so looking forward to it. This is going to be great. This is a good way to start. So LR is like, well, the only way we're going to do this is that you need to come up and we'll go riding in, in Lucerne Valley. Right? Yeah. So I said, okay. And first thing he taught me is like, don't run over that tumbleweed or that piece of grass because more likely there's a rock behind it yep. and you're going to be on your head, right? So I said, okay. So anyway, we had a great, you know, for two years there, I, I did that stuff. And, and, uh, I mean, Yamaha dominated at that point. Husqvarna was the bike of choice in the desert and at all the score races and, and things like that. And Larry, uh, uh, again, kind of like Roger in a way. I mean, so just thinking about things and could MacGyver, I mean, part of a long desert race, any race is finishing the race, but if you're out there in the middle of a Thule someplace and something happens, you're the guy on a bike, your mechanic's back at a pit someplace, you got to MacGyver this thing to yeah. get back, and that's how good Larry was, right? And we had just a great program, so we did that the first year, and... Uh, I don't remember him riding for Yamaha, I just yeah. always picture him on Cowie's. Two years, oh, that was after, that was yeah. post, that was yeah. afterward, but he, Larry went from I think he ran from riding uh, Harley-Davidson Bajas, the Baja 100 they had, and then he was a Husqvarna factory guy. Factory, I said, that's just their, what they had at that point, yeah. right? They weren't really factory bikes. But, and then came to Yamaha, and we rode, you know, basically we started with a YZ465 at that time, or 490, whatever it is, and we converted them into Baja bikes. Air-cooled still at the time, right? All air-cooled, yeah. Was that a, and it was it a decent bike? For that? Oh, it was awesome. Just a bike. It, oh, it was, I mean, it was faster. You know, the Husqvarna's were good, but they had their limitations, you know. And I remember at the, uh, uh, I think it's Diablo Dry Lake or something, somebody um, 
radar LR and he did like 118 miles an hour. It's like a five, seven mile dry lake, you know, you think about it. So we, and as we learned, we got really creative. I mean, the biggest thing on a desert bike is that you're holding the bike wide open for that long. <clears throat> when you go to shut off, they used to seize because all of a sudden when you go like that, there's no fuel. Uh... So we were, we had kind of, we could get to the road racing stuff and the TZ 250s and stuff had a little thumb uh, throttle or not a little thumb like choke. choke. Yeah. So we would take that and convert it and put, make a choke out of it. So when they'd go to shut off, they would just keep hitting that little choke button. And Interesting. Just, you know, Ritching it up and that kind of helped us. Yeah. You don't want to seize at 118 when you roll off the throttle. Well, you better make sure you grab that clutch. Yeah. Right. But anyway, I mean, it, it was certainly a learning curve on all that stuff. And uh, so I did that for two years and then we went, Part of the thing, Larry would ride Enduros as well. And so he was good, but same thing, didn't really have that much experience riding through woods that are, you know, this, this wide. You know? So were you guys in a box at the time? Yeah, and we had a boxer. Yeah. And okay. LR would, him and I would go, like he was happy to go on the road. And, you know, part of the things that we enjoyed while we were on the road was we played golf. Okay. So we would be driving and we would see a golf course someplace and we'd say, well, we can drive at night, but we can't play golf at night. So we'd stop and play golf and do all of that stuff. And now, you know, fun. the box fan days were special. I, and I don't, I didn't realize that until they were all gone, but uh, the couple of years I traveled around in a van, it it is more work, right? Like you're gone a lot more, but like as a younger guy, how fun was that? Having that freedom. Oh, I mean, the best part was you kind of built your own box fan to your own likings, right? Some of the guys would build just unbelievable, you know, speaker systems, stereo systems in them. Some people in the back there was just perfect. And, you know, everyone, there was no really, in that era, there was no, Yamaha, I think we had seven of them. There was never two identical. Right. Some guys like this, some guys like that. And you're our bosses, whether it was Bill Bell or Kenny Clark or whoever it was, at that time, it's like, they didn't really care or have time just so you had that all your equipment. Yeah. And you were at this location by that day. All good. Yeah. So, huh. and we traveled, I mean, our, I mean, but how nice to being able to go, like if you were like, Hey, there's a really cool place to ride in Kentucky. Let's, let's swing through there. We'll ride there a couple of days. I mean, you, you really had complete freedom. Like you said, as long as you were at the event, you had to be too, by this time, what you did between here and there. You're right. Well, the other thing is that, you know, there was no laptops or GPSs. You had a Rad McNally. Yeah. And you're driving yeah. and you're like, that looks like a good place. Let's stop there. Right. Yeah. You know, and so, and we all, t a lot of time when we got going, didn't matter what team, we all traveled together because the other thing, as good as those box fans was, as far as being enjoyable and independent, they weren't that dependable. No. And so for the most part, through five or six of us, everyone would carry different parts so that when we did break down, no matter what, had something, you learned to fix it. Mm -hmm. So, um, did you learn quite a bit? Like who was kind of coaching you on the mechanics stuff or was that just sort of, you kind of just learn on trial by fire, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, like I say, you learn by mistakes and you learn by, you know, other guys you work with. It's like, collectively it's you might be taking care of one individual rider and that's your responsibility but it's still a team effort that yeah. uh no matter where i worked if i had a, a problem or something or i couldn't understand how that worked then 
someone was there that had already experienced that issue could kind of help you get yeah. through it. Gotcha. Um, did you realize at the time, like who you were working for? I mean, was Rosler, I mean, he's, he's an off-road icon now, but at the time where, did you kind of realize who that guy, who he was? Uh, yeah, I knew. I mean, it quickly find out when you go to the first, you know, Baja race that Larry Rosler is an icon, you know, and you know, today's, uh, he's got over, I think 10 Baja 1000 wins and. You know, fortunately, when I was there, we won a couple of them and um, with him. But you, uh, I guess that's what's, I guess I look at over my whole career, all the different people I got to work with, you know, on the other side of the fence, they think that individual is really special, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm really been fortunate to work with that special guy that's so unique and is so talented and has earned a right to be a factory rider. And now it's my responsibility or as a team manager to allow him to continue to, to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we continue on, this is, this is a theme. I mean, you work with some legendary guys, myself included, you know, well, um, our number one in my life. <laughs> but man, I mean, it's except when you're biked, uh, except for the food. Are we going to talk about that? I, don't, I hope you don't bring it up. Um, well, I mean, uh, you also at Yamaha, uh, RJ was there at that time. Yeah, this actually, was this was before his championship. So yeah, I was still he was a stud. I was Ricky's first mechanic. Oh, is that right? That first and last. That's not. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I was his first mechanic and his last mechanic. So at Yamaha, we did the Mint Four Hundred and LR crash broke his collarbone. So I came back. And I go give my report. In that point, uh, the second year I was on my own, Bill Bell moved into the Yamaha Competition Support Department. Okay. So I was just the off-road guy, right? That was just me. And Bill Bell, that's that's Mike's dad, Mike's right? Dad, yeah. yeah, okay. Right, exactly. And he had a huge career as a Honda guy over at a Honda dealer in Long Beach, I believe. But anyway, came to Yamaha for a number of years. But I came back from the Mint 400, Came back in. Kenny Clark was my boss back then again. And he's just kind of a given report. And he's like, okay. And I said, LR is going to be out for probably four or five weeks. He's like, okay. So later on that afternoon, Kenny come back. He goes, Heben, take all the desert stuff out of your truck. We got this new hot shoe who thinks he's a superstar. <laughs> Put 125 stuff in your truck and go down tomorrow and pick up Ricky Johnson. He lives in alcohol. And so I said, <clears throat> I never even heard of him. You'd never heard of him. Never. Okay. So my wife, Sandy, not wife at that time, but <clears throat> Sandy was working at competition support. <clears throat> so it's just like any support program, she's in communication a lot with the parents, right? Okay. So I said, Hey Sandy, I go, I got to go pick up this kid, Ricky Johnson tomorrow. He lives in El Cajon and I'm going to take him on the road for like three or four weeks. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know his parents. He don't know me. Can you kind of break the ice and just tell them I'm like a legitimate person, (laughs) right? Yeah. She said, yeah, okay. So I go down there, introduce myself to uh, the Johnsons and Ricky List. He had one bike and I had driving up parts for another bike. And we drove cross country. And his first professional motocross race was at Road Atlanta, which were, I was just at Road Atlanta last weekend for a road race, right? But they used to do motocross races there, right? So RJ and us, and so Ricky's 
you know, 16. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, Ricky, you know, we race at one o'clock. He's like, yeah, I know. I go, well, we need to train right at one o'clock. He's like, okay, I'll ready. You know, he's all at the center. Yeah. So we're out in the middle of nowhere. And I would just, I just had him get out of the box van. And he's like, what are you doing? I go, you're going to run. You're going to run for an hour. I'll just going to be down the road. And I'll, I'll meet you, right? It's just out in flat roads. You know how it is back in the desert, just as long as you can see. He's like, okay, well, you're, you know, you're older than me. You should know what's going on. I guess that's what I'll do. Puts his shoes on. He's running. He's just running. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he starts to get close. And I just start creeping forward, you know. And he's like, hey. I go, Ricky, it's 48 minutes plus two laps. You know, we got to go. We got to go. Uh <laughs> We just had a great time, and then we went from there. We went to uh, Mid Ohio for a 125 Grand Prix, right? Okay, and then I don't. Know, I think that was about all we did uh, the way the season was. And I brought him back, and and uh, and then obviously the following year he, he he came on board, you know, as a factory guy and uh, did all the things he did so well. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, but but uh, Kenny said, oh, there's this kid that thinks he's hot shit. Oh, yeah. Well, Kenny Clark was a unique boss. He was a great boss. But, I mean, he, you know, even if it was Kenny Roberts or Bob Hanna, he really wouldn't give them the the accolades that they deserved, you know. But, yeah. 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 That's funny. Um, what, was the, what was the vibe at Yamaha back then? I mean, this was sort of the, the Japanese were just starting to sort of take over from, like you said, Husqvarna and some of these other brands. Um, did they really want to, was there a, a strong drive to be competitive well, in motocross was, and off-road out here? It was so interesting because after two years of doing the desert stuff, in the six days, we got done at the end of the year and the nationals was over. We... Uh, we basically couldn't, we just dropped that whole program, you know, and I was at that point, I was kind of have a hard time understanding. Here we are. We came in one year, we dominated and second year we dominated again. We're right here at the, you know, the, the top of the, the top level and an off road. And now we're just, we're just walking away. Right. And it's like, it was that mindset is like, well, we went in, we conquered, we did what we needed to do. We're, we're done with it. And the other is that maybe they, you know, motorcycle sales were really, really good in the early eighties anyway. And so I think at that point, motocross was growing and growing. Supercross was getting more popular is that let's add. And that's essentially what they ended up doing is that our whole off-road program kind of went away. LR still got some bikes to do what he wanted to do for the next couple of years before he ended up going to Kawasaki. But, um, they expanded our, our motocross. So you had dollars shifted over to motor. Yeah. You had a huge Yamaha's competition support competition support program was massive, you know, and mm -hmm. they're just starting to compete with Kawasaki and every manufacturer's had a grassroots program. Mm -hmm. So Yamaha just moved everything over into motocross supercross. Right. Um, so the following years, so 82 through 89, you were at Yamaha, but as a, now as a full-time factory mechanic, right? Um, and you, this, this list of riders, Mike Bell, Warren Reed, Cantaloupe, Bowen, Leesk, and Mickey Diamond. I remember you as Mickey's mechanic. Were you with him a long time during that window? No, one year. Is that it? I, well, it sounds like, a, it's like in a, a lifetime, but it, <laughs> one year. It was a long year. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. 
So wh- who were you with? All of those guys? Yeah. Oh. I started. I mean, I, 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 after that second year in, in 80, at the end of 81, we had our sit down meeting with Kenny Clark and he would just go, okay, uh, Rosenstiel, you're with Glover, McCarty, you're with Lachine. And he'd go, and Osterman, Dave Osterman was Mike's mechanic, right? Yeah. And he goes, and he been, you're with Bell. And I'm like, huh? That, you know, Osterman's with, Dave's with Bell. And I was just like, I'm this guy, you know? And so anyway, it was, you didn't really argue with Kenny. I mean, this is how it was, right? Okay. And Bevo was with Cantaloupe and, you know, it just all sorted out, right? So I was... So there was no really conversation about like, hey, well, I really like working with this guy or what's no, that, that point? It was Kenny just going, boom. Yeah, unless, you know, the writers dictated what happened to really, right? So and the only thing I could maybe says is that prior to our team meeting, Kenny had discussions with, Okay. at that point, you had three premier writers, right? And, oh, actually, Bob was there. I'm sorry, Bob was with, Bob was with Keith and John R. was with Brock. And then I, and so at that point, Mike, uh, Brock, and Bob were the three premier. I'm sure he might have had a conversation with them. I don't know, but yeah. I was like, okay, now I'm not going to be working on a production bike. I'm going to be working on a factory OW, you know, and now I'm starting to question, it's like, am I really qualified? For well, so I just, what we've already talked about, you kind of drove out here on a whim, met up with Marty. Now all of a sudden you're working at Yamaha. Now you're, I mean, like within this very short time, you, you're not really a good mechanic. Hey, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not a good result. We never had a DNF in Boston. Well, I mean, you, you're not trained, right? Like, you're just sort of learning as you go. Uh, trained by the seat of the pants. How are you? Yeah. How did you learn how to ride a motorcycle? Uh, slowly over years, you know, like, you just got thrown right into the deep end. I mean, yeah. you obviously, you made it work. But, like, were you, again, were you not going, man, I'm I'm with Mike Bell? Because he won the Supercross title in 80, right? He, yeah, he had won it in 80. And in 81, he... I don't know. Well, I got him. At 82, I became his mechanic. In 81, he won the championship. So. Yeah, so you, yeah. that's what I'm saying. You're working for the Supercross champ all of a sudden. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was like, okay, got to make this challenge. Yeah. Expect to challenge it. Yeah. You know, keep your fingers crossed. But interestingly, because when you now come into that as a, uh, you know, you're, you're working on a factory bike at those days, you were a jack of all trades, master of none. You know, we do early testing with Olean's or KYB and they would leave with a box of shims, springs and that. And after that, you were on your own doing all your suspension. Yeah. You were on your own doing all your cylinder work. You were on your, you were on your own for everything, right? Yeah. That, that that's something. And talk a little bit about that. I, I hate to say the guys are spoiled now, but it's just a different world. There's somebody that handles all the electronics. Dunlop changes all the tires. There's a suspension guy that handles just the suspension. There's a guy building the engines back at the shop. You know, like if you're a mechanic, you don't touch the motor. Yeah, yeah. It's handed to you and go, okay, put this in. Yeah, the infrastructure is, and I think maybe the stakes are higher now. I'm sure. I mean, everything's relevant to the time. Yeah. Right. But when you left with your box van, you know, you were gone for for five races. You needed to make sure you had enough couch in there to cover you for five races you know you weren't yeah. going to call up on monday and go oh hey i need a fender and this and that yeah i remember we would break down one or two bikes into just parts they get put in boxes and stuffed in the rig that way you knew you had yep. two of piece. two of everything to, right. to build a complete bike yeah no so it's you certainly learned you know and the other is that all along 
by keeping information and data, you know, at that point, you know, we didn't have a laptop or computer, so everything was handwritten, but you'd have a tech sheet, right? Yeah. And say, okay, well, at, at Mount Morris, this is the gearing we had, this is the conditions we had. You, you had to have some sort of a starting point. Yeah. And so the more organized you were, the kind of better off you were when you went to that, or you saw those same similar conditions, you could go, oh, you know what? We had wet mud at this place. We adjusted the gearing this way or that way. Some things just common sense in a way, but it just helps you. And the other is that as a for, as a rider you were, if I came to you and say, hey, Bing, we're going to go dip up, 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 change all these things, and you're going, Oh, but if I, hey, Ping, remember at this event, we went this route, this route, this route, already in your mind is helping to gain the confidence yeah. that so on the first lap, you can be a racer and not trying to figure out what the hell you got. Yeah, right. And so that's kind of the mindset, right, with, that we had. And uh, we, uh, again, I mean, they're the, the, the people around, and then later on as we got there, you know, John R. took a liking or maybe just decided he someone needed to do it but start taking control over all the suspension stuff and so what i think that what's happened is that when you have one individual just doing all the different things you spoke about there's a history that you know what's going on so you know well i don't need a 20 shim i need a 10 shim or this engine we know that this is a potential problem if you're just one person you may not recognize that but all of a sudden you see this is out of line on three or four engines or something, you start, oh, we got to keep an eye on right. it, right? So it, that's yeah, a specialization, right? That, that's that's a key tenet to any successful business, right? You put someone in charge and, hey, be really good at this one thing. We'll put someone else to be really good at this one thing. So, I mean, it's a natural progression. right? But, man, you guys, you were driving, you were shopping, you were cleaning the rig, you're, you know, doing everything on the bike. Yeah, you, you're, you're the sports psychologist. You're the you, trainer. Hey, get out and run. Yeah, in you know, and now you know you got transporters with 500 gallons of water on it, right? We had a like a we had to build our own little pressure washer system yeah. with a 30 gallon tank, you know, and that had to last practice first moto, second moto, right? Yeah. And uh, it just that's the way it was. But it was it was a it was no difference for everybody had box fans. So I, I got to think that you're, you're, you know, this was at a time when Yamaha was pretty powerful. I think right before Honda really started to make their push, like 82, 3, 4, 5, you know, into the 90s. But um, did you not ever look around and go, oh, man, there's Brock Lover and Bob Hanna and I'm working for Mike Bell. This is, you, you're in some pretty. I think that that, I think you just, you look at it as that you're, that's now part of your team, right? Yeah. I guess that for me, like, some of my buddies and stuff from back home in Pennsylvania, you know, they're like, man, Eben's like working for the factory Yamaha team that he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're probably, that's what they probably said, you know, because they see me work on bikes, but, uh, you know, you just, that's the challenge, you know, and, and it's in some of the stuff I brought for you to look at later on is that you, is a, I think one of the coolest things I always could appreciate was that when you're down on the starting line or uh, no matter for an outdoor national, no matter what, and you look around and you see all these people, you know, that have come to see entertainment and racers do their best, 
and you're kind of part of that guy, right? I am. The, one of the best feelings I ever had to understand that, how cool it was, was Mike Bell, we raced uh, 1982, the LA Col Coliseum Super Bowl motocross, right? And there were like 80,000 people there. And we had been struggling. The Hondas were, the HRC Hondas were air cool or were liquid cooled. So were the Kawasaki's and we had our air cooled bikes. And, you know, our, our company decided to come up with these new graphics for, that was going to push us over the hill. You know? <laughs> so it's like, okay. So we had these graphics and we wrote press day on Friday or whatever. And then we went back to the shop and we put all this graphics on where what was it was it like it was they turned my bike had black and yellow and then when the lights would hit it it would the black would shine up red and then john r's bike for brock was black and yellow but when the lights would hit it, it the the black would shine up silver right okay so you're i mean we're getting beat regularly by these guys right and we show up and brock and mike and and i forget who else they make who else was our rider maybe just those two and they're like, wow, oh, this is like, this is the coolest thing, right? And you're like, it's hyped on the, the graphics. This is not really, well, this is the same motorcycle that we're getting beat week in and week out, right? But, <laughs> and we went and those guys rode like they've never rode before huh. and ended up, Mike won the race, won the Super Bowl motocross and got all done. He came around and the mechanics here used to be this, I mean, it was just, you know, long straight away with whoops and he went out through the peristyle and all that stuff, but came, picked me up, you know, and rode me back up to the peristyle, which unbelievable. It was like an outdoor national, how bumpy down up the hill was. I, oh, yeah. I remember that. But when he's riding me up on the back of the bike, you look around, you see all these people. You're like, this is really special. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and having Mike win that race was just, quickly you know you realize it's like i'm in a unique group yeah to have that happen yeah it's really um and you're part of it man i mean as a, as a racer your mechanic is your it's your wingman you know yeah I mean, you, you you rely you rely on them for a lot you know in those days there was because there really wasn't now you see you know they get down with practice there's the, the electronics guy there's this guy there's that guy you know he's got to talk to five different people <clears throat> At that point, in a box van, Mike would just come to that box van and the two of him you. and I, right? Yeah. And sometimes you'd have an engineer or somebody if it was visiting would want to hear something about the bike or something. But for that punch, that was it. You know, wife or girlfriend there too. Yeah. So tell me about your time with with Mickey and what year was that? Mickey Diamond. Mickey Diamond. Night. And why does it seem like you were with him for so long? Why does that stick with me? Well. Real quickly, I mean, Mike Mike got injured, he retired, and then I got the newest, hottest kid on the block was, was Keith Bowen. And Keith, phenomenal rider, just didn't have much discipline. And then um, Jeff Lease came in from Australia. Yeah. Uh, and then that following year, Mickey came on board. And Mickey had just come off a Honda, was really successful. And we were still in a sense, trying to find our way with the Yamaha, you know, because the Hondas were really good. They had HRC support and they had, you know, they, they had a, a number of good riders that essentially were all Yamaha guys who left for left, right? <laughs> you know, Ricky, Stanton, Bob, all, and Lachine all 
jumped on the Honda bandwagon. And so Mickey came over and it was really the first time our test track was at De Anza, uh, quite a drive out from Cyprus. But the first time we were out there, Barack was out there and I think Damon was riding a 125 at that point. Uh, but Mickey got on that 250 where up until that point, everyone was saying, you can't do that, can't do that, won't do that. Mickey got on that bike and he did things that like, we were like, this is unreal. Oh yeah. He was, and he, again, such a natural talent, the jumping and, and the things that, that he was doing. So we were really refreshed and motivated, but it just didn't really work out. I mean, he was good, but not, and I want to say focus was a little bit of an issue. He had, Mickey used to have a lot of distractions yeah. uh, from other industry people to, you know, lizards and alligators and who knows what, I mean, but. Well, he was, he was super interesting. One, he looked, uh, and I think if, am I right on this? Did you make the number six for that bike? Yeah, I did. Yeah. The cool number six that like, when I think of Mickey Diamond, I think of that Yamaha, the black and was it red or pink? It wore pink, uh, answer, answer gear. Yeah. yeah. Just looked cool, long hair. And that number six was just like a fat, cool font and you I if I remember the story right you designed that and cut it out yeah well what happened was I mean single digit at that time you had I forget who it was but this you know you had a a ten and a half inch number plate and you had a this is that was a number yeah, and yeah. I was like I can't see where you're at on the coming into the first turn or whatever right or out of the track so Yamaha didn't really have an art you know an issue with it so I decided to make a, a number that and the AMA had an issue with it at first but they're like when you explain it, this is more a visible thing that so we can identify where this guy's at. So we made it and, you know, it did that for him. And I had done the one for Keith Bowen too, a, a big number nine that afterward that started to get popular for the single digit guys, right? But yeah, it was like, you know, it was the same every week, you know, you were cutting out a number six and put it on there, but I could certainly tell where he was at. It was cool looking. Yeah, it was really cool looking. Um, and there was some of that going on too. I want to say the number that, Rick used at Anaheim 86, um, that was cut out too. And he was getting some static from the AMA about it. And yeah. In fact, they made him change it. Remember, it was like, um, it was a five. But oh, had, number five. I remember. It had like little, you know, scrolly things on it. And they only let him race it that one time because they said it was maybe out of uh, what their Require. rules were. Yeah. And he could be penalized or, you know, somebody could protest it. Yeah. So they're like, all right, we better go back. Anyway, um, tell me, tell me, tell me your favorite Mickey story. Like, cause I know he was buddies with the Motley Crue guys. Yeah. Uh, he was like a poet. He'd be writing poetry. I mean, he was definitely a. This is one of the things, I mean, this guy, Don Dudak, who was a test, it worked in testing at Yamaha. He kept a whole diary of the issues of Mickey week in and week out. I mean, he'd come in and go, Hey, Slice, you know, what happened? You know? And I used to say, well, you know, we have invisible foot pegs on the, on the swing arm and Jim Morrison's back there with Mickey. Mm. And, uh, yes, I, I'd go, it, like we had our test track at De Anza. Mickey lived in Yerba Linda. So at that point you'd go pick up your rider, go to the test track, put in your time, come home, blah, blah, blah. I'd go to Mickey's house in Yerba Linda and sometimes you really didn't want to know what happened that night before. Right. I mean, you're like, okay. Jim Morrison and the Doors was here. You know, something's happening, right? So, but Mickey would never be ready. 
I'm like, Mickey, we got to go. I don't have any, I got to do laundry. I'm like, okay, this is getting old. So I used to then call before I left my house, Mickey, put your laundry in the wash. I'd be there in 45 minutes. As if he could get, you know, enough, right? And I'm up. He, we went one time, oh, there's a lot of unique stories, but one of the times we went to Tommy Lee and, and Heather Locklear's house up in Woodland Hills, right? They wanted to go ride. And those guys were just motorheads, you know? But, and so we went up there and we're riding and Tommy Lee and his other guys, they all got helmets. They put drill holes in it. They could put their cigarettes. No way. Yeah, they had that. <laughs> Mickey's riding with these guys. So Mickey goes off this jump and does a big whip, you know. Tommy just goes off this jump and just, just throws it, right? Just throws it, you know, in the bike. And every other word out of Tommy was F dude, right? And they were, the, they were like, dude, this is, this is the coolest thing, you know. Mickey be just laughing, you know, and it just, and those guys were, but they, I'll tell you what, I, the Tommy Lee kid was, guy was a pretty talented musician because yeah. he went up in the studio. And he had every instrument you can imagine, and he could play every single one of those things. Oh, was that right? It was amazing, you know? And uh, they'd come to the race. I remember the L.A. Coliseum race. Heather Lockler, she was very popular, right? And so Mickey was really popular. And at that time, after the race, like 20 minutes after, they would open up the pat, uh, the pits, and everyone would come to the your box van. You couldn't even get it to my box van. Because if you think of it, you had Mickey that was there, Tommy Lee was there, Heather Locklear was there. You know, I mean, it was just a swarm of people wanting to get one or the other's picture or autograph or something, you know. But, I mean, he was a really a personable guy. And he had an alligator, too, for a while. That was another. So, Mickey, we had an alligator? Yeah, we had a heart-to-heart talk. He, got, he had lizards. He had a lot of stuff. Anyway, he said, I'm moving out to Indio. Cause I got to get out. I'm in a, this is, I'm not this, I got a bad environment. So I'm going to India. Right. So I now got to drive to India to go testing and stuff. Right. Or I'd make them all these care packages. Cause out there you'd go through a filter like in 20 minutes. Yeah. So I go out there and he goes, Hey, slice. And he goes, check out him. And he's got like this three foot long alligator. Right. And I'm like, Mickey, what are you doing with an alligator? What do you, we're, we got to go away. He goes, Oh, it's cool. I just catch. I come behind him, I put a muzzle on him, I leave him, I come home, he's all good, right? And he says sometimes, and he lives on a golf course, he goes, sometimes I put him on like a leash and I just let him go out in the golf course, right? <laughs> and then, I don't know, doesn't really sound that good, right? So Mickey's struggling, just having a hard time. So we're at Mount Morris, and he usually did pretty good. Here he comes in, and he's got a bandage on his hand. And I go, Mickey, what's that for, right? And he's like, you know my alligator? Because, you know, he goes, I don't know what happened, but he kind of got a hold of my hand and <laughs> tore it up. I'm like, I go, that's not good. And I go, right now you're not, like, really on the high note with Yamaha. I would suggest you take that bandage off, put a glove on, you know, get through this weekend, right? And then get rid of that alligator. Was his hand pretty torn up? Yeah, it, it, it got it. I mean, alligators, they got sharp teeth. And this, this guy was like this big, you know? Yeah. So. Lucky he didn't lose his hand. I don't know. Anyway, he probably, I don't know what the whole deal was, but we get through that weekend. 
week or so later, he comes back, brings me the, I think it's called the Indigo News or something. Alligator caught on, alligator caught on golf course. Oh no! He decided to just let it go, and it went into the pond. Golfer was there looking for his golf ball. <laughs> alligator comes up, so they had to bring out the uh, game game warden, and that was I don't know that was it for the alligator, but that was an interesting Mickey story. You know, that sounds about right. And then we can get into other Mickey stories with Supermoto too, but that's, that's but that's coming. That's yeah. the road. Yeah, that's coming. We'll get there. Um, Leesk was really good. Did you spend a lot of time with Jeff Leesk? Yeah, I did. I mean, he was really, really, kind of like Cooper today, really methodical. But the only thing that I, and we had won some national races. He raced 125, then he had done some 250 stuff. And uh, really great personalities and uh, solid racer. But the thing that was disappointing to me, the, a year or so before that, he had injured himself, and we were getting we were at San Diego, and we were talking about the season and getting ready. And he's like, "Hey, just to let you know." I go, "He goes, if it comes down to winning or you know risking too much to win, I'm okay with second, right?" And I was like, "I don't know how far that's going to get us because sooner or later you kind of have to you have to determine I'm going to win this race and let it hang out. Obviously, the last thing you want to do is see your guy get injured, you know. But he kind of I think that." injury that he had had you know got back of his mind a little bit and yeah he still he he still did well but i don't think he rode to his full potential yeah you know and then then Hmm. the year after that he went jeff went to europe i think and was racing honda 500s and the gps and then that's when we got mickey gotcha he was like the first aussie to really come over and do well here huh that i can recall i i think so yeah they came over as a privateer raced on a, a Honda and uh yeah I think you're right yeah yeah um all right so you left Yamaha and went to Suzuki in 89 and 90 as team manager yes. this is another thing I didn't know about you I don't I thought it was buzzard back then but I guess you predated him yeah I got at the end of at the end of 89 at Yamaha or I had got approached by Suzuki to come over and be Bob Hanna had moved to Bob Hanna had moved over to Suzuki. Okay, and I had been approached by them to come and work for them, and I was like, you know what? I really I like it at Yamaha. It's a great family, and yeah. we're probably one of the best places I ever worked. And I go, I'm not really that interested. And then at the end of the season, they did their traditional talk, and Mickey went away, and then I was getting moved in with Ed Scheidler, who did Yamaha's R and D and testing. Which at that point was kind of supposed to be a promotion, but it, in my eyes, it really wasn't. I wasn't really ready to be just a stay-at-home guy, right? You were liking going on the road yeah. and going to the races. So I called Suzuki back and I said, "Hey, you know that offer that you guys had wanted to talk to me about a couple months ago? Let's inter- if you guys are interested, let's reintroduce it." You know, and so Bob made the arrangements for me to come in and meet with Suzuki, and I. Pat Alexander was the team manager there at that time, and they had a huge team, which I used to call ourselves the Bad News Bears. Okay. But, I mean, it's, we had enough budget to run, like, two riders, and we had six or seven, I forget. Yeah. But, uh, so anyway, I came in. Our test track was up at Sunrise, if you can imagine. Sand, I remember it. So, I remember all you, De Anza we used to sneak into. 
after I think after you guys had left, yeah, it was still there, and we'd sneak in for years, and that we'd ride there. And then Atlanta was literally just made out of sand. Yeah, it was terrible. It was a windy, snow, rain, <laughs> like, and you got to get all this stuff done before Anaheim, right? Yeah. Anyway, so I said, hey, look, why don't, instead of me just coming in and being team manager, because they had some, there was some rumbling and stuff, and I go, why don't you just have me be like the testing guy, and I'll get a feel, like get personal, you know, understand the mechanics and everybody, understand what's going on, right? And we had uh, four, four, four 250 guys and I think five 125 guys. Okay. Roddy Tishner, Larry Ward, Mike LaRocco, and Guy Cooper, right? Yeah, Cooper, LaRocco, Ward, Tishner, and then you had Budman, uh, Jeremy Buell, and Gaddis. Yeah, so that's a lot. I think. So, so we do that, and we're getting ready for like a week before Anaheim, and they come in, and and they go, now, hey, we're going to just make the announcement, but you're now team manager, you know? And I think for Pat, as much as he may not like that call, I think he was like happy with it because it was, we really didn't, they had a, big race team but they really didn't have the support to have a big race team right right so we go and we're battling and we're going testing and obviously at that point you know 1990 other teams had pretty good talent other Wardy was at kawasaki ricky was at you know at honda uh Brock was at Damon. Damon was at Yamaha. Damon was at, Damon was at Yamaha. Correct. So we're 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 racing against the top. That's everyone's pretty much prepared. So we make it long story short. We go and and we're now for whatever reason we're becoming competitive. Like this is oh Denny Stevenson. I forgot to put him down. Oh yeah, right. He was a champion. He won. That's right. So we're we're testing we're doing this and all that stuff and we go to Atlanta and one of the best races we've had in a long time Cooper's in the hunt where I was like almost win the race and actually Ricky Johnson won the race but was should have been I thought Wardy won that one isn't that where he did the triple pump on the finish am I thinking of the right one where there was battles for the lead though it was the same time but it was like Damon Wardy Ricky and Cooper yeah, and I think Wardy passed everybody in the whoops. Okay. The last couple laps, he found a little line. Yeah. See, I keep thinking, because I was arguing, I didn't, I thought Ricky won and we got second. And I wanted to protest the Hondas, because the Hondas at that point had a big tungsten skid plate that had fallen off. And so at the end of the race, Ricky was underweight. Oh. So I came back and I had told Tosh, my boss, I says, I had called him that night. It's like, hey, you know, we got second, but we should windows because his bike's illegal and if your seat falls off and you're underweight you know that's the rules right yeah and at that point you got to win any way you can win right so he's like he'd go heaping do not wake up the sleeping giant (laughs) what what are you talking about those like this is bullshit you know he's like i'm telling you just let it go i said okay so we go Larry Ward from, uh, so we go continue on. Larry Ward's from Washington, right? We go, Larry Ward, we had an issue. He didn't, we used show a suspension. Larry Ward had to have KYB production stock, forks. Stock, yeah. com, stock KYB forks with fish oil in and everything else, right? We go, Larry Ward wins Seattle Supercross. 
first time Suzuki had won a Supercross since Mark Burnett or something. Yeah. Who knows? Long time. So now that's like over, ready to go in. And on the East Coast stuff, Denny, when we're racing East Coast, Denny Stevenson's leading the 125 Supercross Championship, and Jimmy Gaddis and Buddy are doing okay, but I think both those guys kind of had some injuries. We got we get through the whole season, and, and the, the situation with Larry Ward was certainly unique, but because of Shoal was supplying a suspension, we didn't have a suspension guy. I had, I mean, you're, you talk about being uh, stressed out. We are a jack of all trades. We had, you know, your team manager, you're, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing that, you're trying to do suspension. It was a mess. I you had enough parts to really, like, handle three or four riders. Yeah, and you Trying to make make it work for seventh. Yeah. I want to say Big Bird. Big Bird told me that they, he could get like two races out of a new set, and then it would be too soft, and so he'd need to oh, yeah. keep he'd replacing. Have, I'd go, okay, Larry. What happens? What happens if you have to? If we do press day, what happens if you run the last chance? What happens this? You know, because he'd say this is only good for twenty two laps, and then after that, <laughs> these forks are junk. <laughs> and then you're like, and I talked to Ross at KYB, and Ross is like. No, that you, those you got to go through these four. He wouldn't even let Ross go through the forks. Yeah, just take them right, order them. I mean, put them on. So perfect. Easily one of the most bizarre. Oh yeah, uh, preferences I've ever heard. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it, it what it was, but then we moved into outdoor nationals, and um, we had at that point there was two fifty national, one twenty five nationals, and then there was five hundred nationals and one twenty five nationals. Right, and Suzuki didn't have a five hundred, so. Ronnie, Michael Rocco, Ward all transitioned and rode 125s afterwards. And Cooper was on fire that year. Yep. Really rode well. And our main competition was John Michelle Bale and Kradowski on the Hondas, mm -hmm. which had suspension guy, engine guy, that guy, yep. that guy, right? HRC. Anyway, make long story short, we, Cooper, pulled it off, ended up almost lost the championship. But ended up winning the championship by one point at Unadilla and was the first, I think, 125 championship that Suzuki had won since Mark Burnett or something. Yeah, so. yeah that, that's an interesting story. We've had Kudrowski on, and he talked about um, how JMB was getting, like, the good motors. And then when he got hurt, they said, oh, hey, Mike, why don't you ride his bike? And he, it was so much better. This is according to Mike. Yeah. It's like, they would have given me that motor from the start. I'd have been way more competitive. I, I would have been in the hunt. But that was a really tight uh, chase, you know, oh, between well, three of those guys. When JMB got hurt, Cooper had like a 60-point lead, and he did his very best to give that to the West. <laughs> I mean, what happened? Didn't he have a race where he DNF'd like a couple of motos? Well, at, at Steel City, went through a... a, a uh, a rut, hit a rock, broke the drain plug off, done, mm -hmm. DNF. At Millville, start going up the hill. It's like, hey, Coop, like, you got to get through the first turn here. Get through the first turn at Millville, you know, go through the sand section, you come back up, go up the hill. Runs off the track, gets stuck down into the fence there. You know, there's there, that fence is right there. Yeah. Okay, that's, a, that's 25. That's 50 points right there we just give away. And you only had a 60-point lead, and Krudowski is starting to, like, pick it up, right? Yeah. But the interesting thing was, Beginning of that year, I asked all those guys. We had a meeting, and Hannah was there, and Bob is just awesome. I said, what do you guys hate the worst? What do you hate riding in most, right? And for the most part, they're all like, 
We hate ruts and we don't like mud. So we raced a 125 Grand Prix in July at Unadilla. And the last race of our season was at Unadilla, right? So the day after I arranged rent at the track, Bob came out and it had rained. And Bob and our bad news bears went out there and they rode all day in the mud, in the ruts and that, right? Mm -hmm. And we come to the last race of the year at Unadilla and it wasn't a torrential rain, but it was, there was, you know, Dilla at that yeah. point was natural terrain. It got ruts. Yeah. And I really think by those guys spending that extra time with Bob riding on Monday just was, just worked out really, really well. Game changer. I yeah. win the championship. What a, what a, what a squirrely guy to have your hopes pinned on for a title, right? I mean, I love Guy Cooper. Yeah. But man, he's, uh, He's squirrely. Yeah, well, you got to put, you put, you put Coop and then you got Marshall Plums as mechanic, right? <laughs> okay. And, and, uh, you can't not love both of those guys, but no, nah, you go there. I remember we went, I told Toach, I said, we're getting ready for, you know, uh, my, uh, Red Bull was always around 4th of July. Yeah. So I said, Toach, we got to go. I'm going to go to Cooper's. I need tests before Red Bull because we're doing 36, 38 millimeter carburetor, blah, blah, whatever parts we had, right? Yeah. But we're just trying to gain his confidence. He goes, no. And I'm like, what do you mean, no? We're like, this is the first time we've actually been in a hunt to win a championship. And you say, you don't want me to fly to Stillwater. You know, I'm on salary. It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. No, you don't need to go. Yeah. Okay. So I go to Bob. Bob's like, just go. Just go do what you need to do, right? So we went there and before that and that's obviously Marshall had the box fan, you know, and after that drove up to Red Bud and uh had some good results and but those are kind of the challenges. It's like are you guys really behind me or do we really what are we really trying to do? Or we already think that we're beat. Why was he saying no? They just hey Coach was an old school guy, you know, in in one sense you gotta love him and, and it's like uh him and I used to argue quite a bit. And I don't know if you know Tosh at all, but I mean, Tosh yeah. is this high. Yeah. Okay. He was old when I got there. And him and I used to argue, and we would, uh, Suzuki is all open. So he'd always go, Haven, to the conference room, right? And I'd go in there, and we'd argue about things that I thought made sense, right, To for a team manager. And uh, every morning, he'd be, he sat behind me. Every morning, he'd be with his paper, right? And I, most of the time, he'd be sleeping. But anyway, he had, he's reading a paper, knowledgeable guy. So he'd, he'd give me crap. And one time, he said, even don't mess with me, right, in a, in a, in a way. I'm like, Tosh, what are you, you going to do? Like, what? You going to beat me up? You know, it's like, he's like, goes to his desk, goes like that, right? So I go, I go back, opens his drawer. He has, he has a pistol. He has a pistol in there? No way. <laughs> I swear to God. I'm like, you're like, all right. Okay, Toast, <laughs> you're the man. You know, and he just laughs. You know, I don't know. I don't know who knows what it was. But it's in Suzuki's corporate office. Yeah, it was so funny, though. Yeah, but that's, and I mean, I was, it's Suzuki's kind of strange because, you know, I was a stone throw away from Shigenora, the president, and I was the same from being thrown out the door, at being out the window, right? Yeah, right. Or out being thrown out. What What was, I remember Hide also. What was Hide was like the liaison between Japan okay. and us, right? Hide, unique guy, 
but I think had been there too long, where it's kind of like, you know, and I think that's what happens a lot of times with seasoned managers. They've already, they kind of get to the point, they fought the fight, they fought, yeah. kind of, they already know. Start to give up and just go with the flow. They just like, yeah. I know I know what they're going to say, yeah. you know, so. Do you, a little sidebar here, just because you have history with Suzuki, what do you see going on with them right now? I don't know. I mean, I can't understand. I mean, great that Roxkin's out there, right? They've got a presence out there. But, you know, just to what they're selling and stuff, and I'm a little distant from that. I know on the road racing side, they, they stepped away. Yoshimura used to be, you know, the team. They yeah. were that, that team, and especially you battled with Yamaha in road racing. And they, when Yamaha stepped out, Yo stepped out, and... They don't really have a powerful present. The GS on their Suzuki, I think, was early seventies. Their motocross bikes were like the really, really good, and then later on, they kind of shifted to road racing. You know, the GSXRs they had a great amateur or great program, you know, support program, and they had a race of champions kind of or something like that. But now, neither the GSXRs. But sport bikes just aren't selling. Kids so you can't, yeah. you know, use your phone on a sport bike. So that's not going to happen. So, and, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't know what their amateur program is. It used to be pretty, pretty stout. Pat used to kind of oversee a lot of that. And... It, they just made some odd decisions like, uh, you know, to win the MotoGP World Championship and then then pull out. Yeah. Like who made that call? Um and obviously what's happened with racing here, uh, it's just really kind of head-scratching. No bike changes in so many years. And I had someone tell me the other day who works, you know, in, with the manufacturers. Yeah. They said, you know, people don't realize Honda's the biggest. And in terms of overall sales, Suzuki's the second biggest manufacturer. But their focus is vehicles, a lot of third-world countries, South America, little cars, little bikes. Scooters. They sell a crap ton and outdoor, outdoor, uh, inboard, outboard marine engines. Right. Marine engines. They're bigger than Yamaha and Kawasaki. And I, I was like, in total sales. And I was kind of blown away by that. And they just said, look, you could take dirt bikes out of their equation. It's, it wouldn't factor in at all. Yeah. So maybe that's just the, they're like, who cares? The, the corporate, maybe, because the, obviously their US market's not that strong in, in all those disciplines that right. you spoke about, right? No, the, yeah, maybe I don't know bell calls anymore in the United States, I don't believe. I don't think so. But I mean, I think that sometimes there's a bigger picture that we're we're just here. We're not yeah. looking at that big picture to understand the mindset or the direction of what they're doing. And, and you know, they're staying in business and in a competitive world. Maybe that's okay. Yeah, they're double-digit billion company. I mean, they're, they do fine. It's yeah. just dirt bikes isn't a part of that equation. So I just, it's sad to me to see it go away. Like, I don't know if you, well, I get, you were a Suzuki guy for a number of years. Pat gave me my first ride yeah. in 1991, you know? Uh, so I don't know. I have a little soft spot for him. Yeah. I don't want well, to see you go, go back to, you know, when Danny Laporte rode one and, and Donnie Emler kind of got involved with all that stuff and FMF and they were, I mean, look at Roger. I mean, look at the past yeah. trans You had Joel Robert, you had Sylvan Gold or Joel Robert, Joel Bear, Sylvan Kabor, Sabor, yeah. Roger, you know. Oh, the the history of the company in racing is crazy. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a shame. And then, but, you know, I'm trying to just go, okay, well, what, five years down the road, what does it look like? Are they gone? And now we have Triumph and Beta's got a team and 
um, you know, are, are we running electric by, you know, yeah, kind I, of, kind of weird to see where it's headed. I think that some of the, again, it comes back to, we're seeing a, you know, a, an influx of different Ducati triumph in the road racing world too, you know, and I think it's kind of contingent on the worldwide market. What's, what's happening. Yeah. And obviously production bike sales are contingent on all the racing that we do. We're not MotoGP, you know, or yeah. not F1. We're everything that we race here in the United States is based off of production-based motorcycle. Yeah. And if they're selling more of something in Europe than they are in the United States, then that kind of dictates what changes and what things get happen. That's just kind of the way it, it always works, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, interesting stuff. I will say this. Um, your bikes those years, like 89, 90, 91, the factory Suzuki's, man, they were good. The 125. Like, I remember Jimmy Gaddis's bike. Like I, whoa, 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 whoa. Not factory. Production. Production. Easy pick. Okay. Okay. There Mark, parts... Mark, Mark Laporte, Ken Howerton, they had factory. Those were factory. Oh, those were works bikes, we'll right. call them. Okay. Um, oh, you mean our, our, like the factory team? Yeah, you're, you're racing. Like, he had, you guys had a silencer that was made of carbon fiber. It looked like the stock one, but it was all carbon. Yeah, I think sounded so good. Those are uh, Rudy Dickerson R and D oh. made all those things. Okay, yeah. But I, I remember even when I w rode one twenty fives ninety four ninety three ninety four, I got some parts kicked down. Like I know this wasn't probably supposed to have them, but some of the box stand guys. We had plenty of parts. Yeah, so they do. Here's a pipe. And here's an ignition, and it made such a difference. Remember the B two ignition or the H pipe, the H two pipe blew me away how good those things were yeah and i mean that was that was in sense simple because i i again if you go back to understanding of the production line right is that they're the the first year of that model they come out let's make i i i'm not involved with it now but in the past is that a model came out and then it kind of stayed the same for three or four years right yeah so that model came out as let's say with uh, specification A, they already knew what specification D was going to be. So based upon when they would introduce spec B, C, D, or whatever, was kind of contingent on competition, what was going on out there. So the factory teams and support teams, like you might have got a B2 emission, that might have been already earmarked for somewhere down the road. Huh. It's already tested, proven. Let's give it to our race guys. It's a... It's a um, liable part that's that's uh homologated that can be used let those guys use it it, it helps showcase the brand it's only going to help sell more hmm. you know win on sunday sell on monday type yeah. theory interesting um and then were you surprised um you know like budman and and jimmy gaddis were both coming off mini bikes they were the hottest things going yeah and it seems like i was really looking for both of those guys to be you know, kind of blow up. And it seems like they both kind of had, I mean, Jimmy Gaddis did win a title. Uh, Budman won a bunch of races, but it seems like neither one of them kind of reached the yeah, potential. Well, I could they, probably, probably that was probably some of my own fault because, you know, they were young guys. They really need to be kind of, they really needed to be nurtured a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to capture all this stuff and you have to look at the 250 cast as the premier class and they're racing and then you can't do it at all right right and 
Jimmy was a, a great kid. I knew him. You know, he had some mechanical issues here and there. Buddy was, again, coming off it. But, you know, you think about the first time Ricky Carmichael got on it, how size-wise, how pro circuit, even Team Green, what we did to accommodate, to make him comfortable on a motorcycle. Looking back, we really couldn't, we didn't have the resources to do that. I mean, if you think about it now, he should have had lower, you know, higher foot pegs or lower foot pegs, different seat, different subframe, all the pieces that it just now it just happens, right? Right. So he's out there and, you know, I mean, it's almost, the bikes, even though it's a 125, it's almost overpowering for him coming off of where he came from, right? Right. And I'm just, I'm just thinking about that now, right? Because... Danny had really, Danny won a 125 East Coast Championship. He's taller, and that thing seemed to fit him, right? Yeah. Um, and obviously, look at Buddy later on with the arena cross, how dominant he was. Mm. And so, he, you know, he got, he matured physically, got stronger, and he had success. Well, he also had the unfortunate timing of being in the 125 class when Jeremy was there. Uh, 91, when he should have probably been, okay, time to win. Like, you got your feet wet in 90. Jeremy, Jeremy comes in with, with peak uh, pro circuit. And and then I think it comes back to, obviously, I was gone, and I only lasted at Suzuki for a year. And uh, I think it comes back to that whole, look how much testing Mitch did. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean the, the guy... And with bones and stuff, the amount of time they put in for every, they had four riders generally, right? Yep. But they could give those four riders uh, the attention that they needed to do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And I think when I left Suzuki, and I really didn't want to leave Suzuki, I was like, oh, we got it. Yeah. What happened? It seems like you won a a 125 championship with Denny, a 125 outdoor title with Coop. You won a 250 Supercross with Larry. Yeah. Hell, that's a great year. Yeah, well, I when I signed on, I said, hey, look, Tosh, I said, let me earn my keep. Pay me like you pay your regular mechanic, and I'll show you what I can do, and we'll move forward. I actually really fell back, because I had hired Tylen Volan for the following year. You know, we had kind of shrunk the team a little bit because of man, manpower. Uh, Pete Steinbrecher came on and was helping with suspension and other things, and so we... We were kind of, I thought we were moving in the right direction. At the end of the, end, end of the year, I came back and I said, okay, Tosh, okay, we've done this just as you said. We did this, this, this. This is what I think we can do moving forward. But I want to be compensated to do what I do, not as a mechanic. I'd like to have, be, instead of using my own personal vehicle, you've got a fleet of Suzuki's out there. You've got something I can drive in and out to the test tracks. And I'd like to have a computer at that time instead of writing everything on paper. And he sat there as his typical of doing it and just said, came back and said, no. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, you, you know, part of it's negotiations, right? No to what? And he's like, uh, just no. And I think, okay, that shows me how much you appreciate what I did, mm-hmm. you know? And fortunately at that time at Unadilla, uh, Jeff and Ricky or Roger or some, I think that was Ricky came over and said, Hey, you know, Lunas is going over to Yamaha. Why don't you come be my mechanic? And I was like, I'm actually, you know, we just won a championship here, RJ. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty, doing pretty good. Yeah. Come back from Suzuki and it's like, no. Uh, hey, RJ, 
you know, who do I need to come talk to? Either go see, go to Honda, go talk to Dave and Roger, you know, and those guys, I, I'm, I, I can essentially get along with pretty much anybody. Sometimes I'm not the best communicator, but they had a, their own challenges at American Honda where they kind of had, uh, um, from the outside, it was they weren't a very uh, approachable program, right? Uh, especially if you rode a Honda or something like that. Okay. So I went and met with those guys at American Honda, and they're like, hey, you know, RJ would like to have you as mechanics. Stanton's here with Dan Bentley. You already know Stanton. Stanton rode with you at, 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 at Yamaha. And I was like, okay, what, what's the parameter? You know, what do we got? It's a one-year contract. Pays you a boatload more than what you're making now. Got one headache, not seven headaches, right? And uh, you got a nicer box fan, which I didn't have a box fan at Suzuki. But so I was like, okay, let's, let's do it, you know? So that's how I transitioned. And I went, the first race I went to, we'd already been planning things at Suzuki for moving ahead because I really didn't think I was, I didn't really, it's kind of going backwards, right? You progress, progress, get to be a team manager. Now you're going back to be a mechanic. So it's like, almost this is not moving forward but again it's honda hrc it's like that's at that point was a pinnacle of racing yeah right so i go to japan with ricky for the japan supercross in tokyo and i get off i come in through the hotel and all the japanese or all the suzuki engineers that i had been communicating with they're all like hey ron how you doing blah blah where are we like you know time out guys i don't know toe shit and tell you but i'm I'm over here with Honda now, and you know I'm not sure who you're. I think Ray Tetherton ended up taking over. Mm-hmm. Pat went back. I'm not sure, but anyway, that's kind of how that worked out. Yes, that's crazy. He wouldn't even negotiate. No, it was it was no the, kind of the typical way that the Suzuki did business. I think right. Mm-hmm. It's I mean it's their company. They they're obviously it's their company. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So you're with RJ that year. He was having trouble with his wrists, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, Ricky had him and uh, uh, Danny uh, Storbeck. Storbeck crashed at Gainesville, right? And he had tore up a lot of his hand. And so he's like, hey, I want to come back. And Brian had gone over to Yamaha with with uh, Brad, Brad now, right? So... The, yeah, let's let's get after it, you know. So we start testing and start doing all that stuff. I went to race in Japan, did that, and uh, we were at San Diego Supercross. Still started the season, right? Second, third race. Press day going through the whoops, and all of a sudden, RJ just wads it into like the wall, right? He comes to me and he's like, "Hey, slice the throttle stuck wide open," and I'm like. Are you sure? Are you sure you didn't land off the triple and grab too much, and then you couldn't get a shot off going through the whoops? Because he rode it back to me like the throttle was working, and I go, "I'm not. I'm just asking you that." I'll, and so we take everything apart. Really can't find anything, but we replace everything in a sense, right? Just like this is no time to test. Yeah, he needs to go, and he was kind of just banged himself up, but he was okay. So. I'm on my way to Atlanta Supercross is where our next route was. And I'm driving and at that point, no cell phone. So at night you just call in or during the day. I call him that night and he's like, Hey, Slice, I got good news and bad news. The good news is you were right. 
the throttle didn't stick. The bad news is I was riding at our test track down in El Cajon and my wrist locks up. And the only way I can shut the throttle is I had to take my hand off and rotate it back. And I like, well, that's not good. You know, that's not good at all. And he was really quite apologetic because he knew I had left Suzuki to come over to work with him. And I was like, Ricky, you need to just stop right now, retire. You get away from this. You don't need, you've already accomplished more than anyone could ever dream. Just be tired. And so essentially he went in that next week and talked to Honda and they announced his retirement. Mm. So then I came back and uh, really was just kind of monkeying around in the shop. Like, and I went up to see Gary Mathers because Dave and Roger were there, but Mathers was the main motorsports manager. So I went to see Mathers and I was like, hey, I go, you know, RJ's retired. What do you want me to do? Because you don't really need to do nothing. You could just park your box van. We'll pay you until October and move on. And I'm like, no, Gary, you understand. I didn't leave where I was at to just to come over for one year and just, you know, get a paycheck and not do anything. That's, right. um, I don't, I didn't come here just for one year. So he goes, well, go down here and talk to Dave and Roger. And so I ended up talking to Dave and Roger. And at that point we had JMB, we had McGrath, Stanton. Uh, and kind of talked to those guys about doing, setting up my box fan and transitioning to be a test box fan, right? So instead of Dan and when those guys are out on the road and they're flying back, I would be the, kind of go testing. Dave and I would go, or, or Jim Anderson was doing suspension, right? So I took over that role. role and then at the same time, a Honda race shop in Torrance is right next, at that time, motocross was on this side of the of the aisle on this side was road racing. So I started talking to the road race guys and they didn't have anybody doing any suspension at that point. And that's when they were racing an RC 31 and 600, right? So I was like, hey, I can probably do that for you guys. And they're like, well, we need somebody. So I was like, okay. So I started splitting my time doing the motocross testing and stuff. And then I started learning and, and doing the road race suspension for those guys that was Showa suspension as well. And that, was Showa training you? I mean, how do you know road race stuff? But you just kind of again you look at you just look at the look at what you've got currently and understand what they do and start Showa had a shock dyno and stuff. So I'd go over there and we'd run dyno and stuff. And I mean on the production production six hundred it was conventional forks. It was pretty basic, right? But on the other was factory Showa stuff and then uh, two brothers racing had Steve Crevier and Freddie Spencer were riding. So I ended up doing some of their stuff it's throughout the year as well. Right. So I kind of got my feet wet and started understanding the road racing side of the world. And then, and did uh, that interest you? Did you like the road side or were you just like, man, I just need to do something. I, yes and no. I mean, you, you get into it, you get involved. It's like, man, these guys are amazing what they do. Yeah. I mean, they are, you know, you go, you talk to you, if you had, McGrath talking to Miguel Duhamel, they they both think they're crazy. Yeah. Like, how do you do that, right? Yeah. It's just what we do. That's how they do it, right? So, so I did all that. And then at the end of the year, uh, at the end of that year, while we're on the Honda's situation, was Cliff White decided, oh, JMB, actually, the fall of that end of that one year, I ended up going to Motocross the Nations with JMB and then a, a Supercross race with JMB in France. 
Okay. Which that was one talented writer. Yeah. If you ever got a hit, I'm not sure how well you know him, but what he did, but he was yeah. very, really methodical and understood. Like he knew that Jeff Stan was going to outcondition him, but he knew what he needed to do to win the race, you know? And, uh, yeah, there's some races. Um, I want to say it's Tampa. Might have been 92 or 93. I can't remember. It's one of my favorite races to watch. Battle up front with five or six guys. Um, uh, Bradshaw's up there. Stanton's up there. It's a mix of like legendary guys. Maybe Kudrowski. Yeah. And Jambi's just sitting fifth the whole race, just sitting there out of the picture, really. Those guys are all fighting. And the last three laps, he just like, flips a switch and it's like passes a guy through the whoops passes another guy he's out front and he's gone and wins and you're just like what just happened and he was like that he could he I just gone. remember watching him carve lines like from the inside and still jump something and you're like how you know and I think the people he raced against we thought the same thing at that point Honda had their test track at Simi Valley right uh and we'd go out there, and I'd go out with Jeff. And, you know, I always compared those two, like in football. You have a halfback and a fullback. Both can get you 10 yards. But this one's a bull, and this one's going to zig and zag and do this and that. Yeah, and that was the difference be I look at is the difference between JMB and Jeff. I'd go out there to test track with Jeff. He'd go, okay, Heben, we're going to do this, 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 this. Okay, get it all done. Test whatever we had to test, right? I'd go out there to test track with JMB. I go, you gotta, what, do we gotta, what are we riding? He's like, I'll do maybe five laps on a supercross track. I'm going out in these hills and just ride and do jumps. Good. He'd go, you'd see him jump, 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 jump. He loved riding trials bikes. Okay. He was, and then he transitioned into, into riding road race bikes too, right? But he understood his competition and, and, and knew there. So we were at a, we were at, Bert, we were at, uh, Parc de Prince in France for a Supercross, right? And the only really main competition was Larry Ward, and he was doing good. And so they had this big stutter section. And JMV's just smoking everybody in practice, right? Larry Ward comes up after practice and goes, hey, JMV, he goes, what should, I, should I be going through these whoops in third gear or second or third, you know? And JMV goes, no, nah, you need to at least go in third. And he left. He's like, oh, man, I've been doing it in second, you know, and the bike's working like that. So I get down to JMB. I go, that's the only guy. That's the only guy that's actually close to you. He goes, don't worry about it. He goes, I go through in fourth. <laughs> I started the race. Here's Larry Ward. Goes through the whoops. Goes JMB. Oh, gone. Just blows past. Yeah. Him. I mean, and that's just how he was, you know. Yeah, was he was he a nice guy? Like he didn't come off. He just didn't like really work to win the fans over. I blame so, uh, I blame that a little bit on Honda. Yeah, not to say I'm the PR guy, but he generally was a great guy. And you remember, you know, Cliff is one of the smartest technicians out there. But Cliff was pretty quiet in his own. Yeah, Cliff White. Reserve. Cliff White's very right. I mean, yeah. It, 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 Mitch has some stories with Cliff, but. Um, so JMB was really an outgoing guy. He loved it. Like I went, we went and played golf a couple times. Loved it. I, I, I organized for him to go to Guy Cooper's house before the Stillwater. We used to have a race in Stillwater, right? Supercross. Okay. Yeah. 
I arranged for him to go to Supercross or to Cooper's house a week early because Cooper just wanted to ride every day. I mean, he just rode. Well, he was into Charles bikes too. Cooper, JMB went to Coop's. I'm sure those two had a Thank God they jumped there. I mean, you can imagine what they found to jump, right, or do. But anyway, he really was. And he kind of got, the reason he kind of expressed to me, is like one of the reasons he ended up leaving. I mean, he was still in his prime. Oh, yeah. I mean, right? But it just didn't feel like he was welcomed. And I don't know if that's because he was French, but I mean, yeah, other French writers have come and have been well-received. But I... He generally was, I think, a pretty outgoing guy if we would have allowed him to be an outgoing guy. You know, maybe our the whole media, they kind of just kept him hemmed in there. I don't know. Mm. You know, And obviously, you know, St Stanton was in his hero and Damon was really popular, right? I don't know. But sometimes in racing, you need conflicts of interest to create a story. Yeah. Yeah, he was the uh, John Gerard to the Ricky Bobbies we had going on. Yeah. And... um it was just a shame because he didn't seem like he was a dick, but it sure that was sort of how he was portrayed, right? Like he was this aloof, jerky French guy, yeah. and and I I remember him getting booed at stadiums. I was kind of like, oh man, dude's getting hammered, yeah. you know? Well, it, it and uh, you know, like you know, like that race at the LA Coliseum when Damon had the championship wrapped up, and you know. JMB just methodically came through and ended up doing what he won, remember, and then Stanton Stan won the championship by means of Dame, or JMB beating Damon and stuff. But, and so and I think it is that European against American kind of, yeah, probably something to do with it. Kind of argument because here's Damon, he's from North Carolina, you know, and JMB's from France and blah, blah, blah. I don't know for sure, but I know personally, I, I thought the guy was really out and going. Um, and then at the end of that season, there was just nothing for you there? No, the end of that season, that was 92. Then Cliff decided he wanted to come in-house and be the test guy. And and Danny was still, Bentley was still with uh, Stanton. Pete Steinbrecher, who we worked together at at, Suzuki, at Yamaha Suzuki and at Honda was with uh, Doug Henry. Yep. So I came back and was with Lamson. And that prior year, Lampton was like our test guru, right? He was still racing, but he was our test guy. And so I got switched over to going back on the road with Lammy, and we raced 250, outdoor, 250 Supercross and 500 outdoors, right? Okay. So then at the end of that year, I left, and that's what been 93, and there's, at the end of 93, I left. I want to say, oh. Go with chicken, right? Yeah, I quickly found out that I was like, I was, a couple things. I, I mean, it's like, you kind of get to the point where it's like, okay, I've done this boxing and stuff. I've, I've run the gamut on that. And everybody else going to semis and Honda was still holding back because some individuals wanted to have box fans, good and bad. Uh, so I was like, okay, I can, do, I can do something. I've been around this industry enough I can find it. And I quickly found out it's not that easy to find a position, right? Yeah. So, Randy's timing's everything, right? Yeah, it is. Randy Skinner, a good friend of mine, I started helping him in the m morning. Well, actually, Chicken called me. He had been riding Suzuki's in Japan, wanted to come back and ride, right? So I went and met with Chicken. I go, honestly, Chicken, 
I know you're a good writer, but I really don't think you're very serious. You know, I don't, just from the outside in, I don't know you that well, but, and he's like, now slice, I'm, I want to do this, right? I said, okay. I says, I can do, I need to work at Randy. I, so I'm working at Skinner's in the morning. And then I would, he, we got a deal through NCY Yamaha and had bikes and uh, worked out a, a program with McCarty to ride at the Yamaha test track. Mitch and Bones had agreed to help him out on motors and suspension, right? So it was probably one of my most rewarding times as being a mechanic because I had no box van and we had expectations to do well. And I really just had to figure out logistics to make, to make it all work, right? So I would work at Randy's until noon, go pick chicken up. We'd go to the test track and we would determine what we needed. I had, we had gotten two sets of suspension and some other extra stuff, right? So we'd go out there and test all this up. Way back, I would stop at Pro Circuit, talk to Bo and said, this is what I want to try for the next day. Talk to Mitch about motor spec or something. That we, this is what our challenge is. And I quickly found out that Chicken was a pretty knowledgeable rider. Like I wanted to almost test him at first to figure out if he could tell me what we're actually doing, right? And he was really sharp, understood, knew what he wanted and knew the things that we made. So that was comforting in a sense is like, we're going to make progress, right? So we went, we went into the first part of the seasons with really, you know, really no expectations. And we really did well. I mean, he, he at that point, it was a little harder to get in the main event. It was only top four, you know, and then you had a semi to top seven had to go in. And, you know, for the most part, he would generally easily win the semi or be right in third or fourth to get in the main event and, and had a lot of top 10, top seven finishes. Yeah. So went to the outdoors, kind of did the same thing. Going to the races was, going to races ping was really unique because you know chicken, chicken's unique. He had a, this girlfriend, wife, Ruby, three kids. So I built, at Skinner's, I built this engine box, right? So my bike, I would say, I gave Jeremy Buell, I gave him the chassis. At the first race, the whole bike's together. After the race, I would take the, I had rotating suspension. So after the race, I would pull the engine, take the suspension, put that in a gun case, which actually was my ramp to load the bike up, right? Had a toolbox, had my bag. Go home, do all our testing, because we had another bike here. Fly to the race, toolbox, engine box, suspension box, right? Go, we get there, we go get a, a budget van, Ruby. Three kids, chicken, me, two seats in the van, right? Take them to the hotel, drop them off, go find Jeremy. And then in this truck over here, I had all the plastic in another box. And in this other truck, I had fuel and all this stuff, right? Go pick this stuff up. Press day would be on Thursday. Go get the, go get that, put the engine in, put the suspension in, go get fuel come back, go pick chicken up, go do press day, right? And then gather all my parts up. And then at the same time, I knew like, you know, what the time frame were, like for the Yamaha guy, Steve Butler was a two box mechanic. You know, I knew they put a new clutch in every time, but new, a one race clutch is better than a two race clutch, right? Yeah. So I'd get clutch from Butler. I'd get chains from somebody else. I'd get this from them. I get brake pads from these guys. And there's a hodgepodge of stuff 
to put this bike together for chicken, right? Week after week after every week after every. And then after practice testing, I had to go to a car wash, you know, and I'd find a car wash. I could wash the bike and get it prepped. Sometimes not in the best parts of town, but that was my lighting, right? Build your bike, put, put the gun case down. That was a ramp, load it back in there, head back. <laughs> that was, and I, we did that. And it was like, it was all right. You know, because yeah. the expectations were like this and we were actually doing pretty yeah. well, you know? Yeah, exceeding your expectations. Yeah. Um, he's definitely a character. Yeah, he is. I mean, he, uh, he'd go, and he would, you know, I used to really not like him because I had, when I worked for Steve Lamson, Steve Lamson's like the nicest guy on the track. No. And Chicken would come up to Steve and he's like, I'm going to kick your ass. And you'd see Lammy be going, why do you say that to me, Slice? I go, I don't know, but are you, are you going to let him? No, no, I hope not. You know, it's like, like, show some aggression. Yeah, yeah, right. Anyway, but he was a tough guy. He's good, good. Any, any funny stories with him? I And I know he and Ruby are like two sticks of dynamite. I mean, it, they're constantly fighting and. Oh yeah, they would be. I, I mean, think they've been married. They got married and divorced six or seven times. Yeah, something like you know, he'd be, I'd be on, it'd be off. I think the same thing is that you know, his dad Jim Metasma just passed away of, of about a month or so ago, and Dorothy. But they would be like the the kind of like common day, you know, and they they they'd love going to the races. They did, but chicken, like I say, we'd go get a box van, and you're like, how are we gonna put all these people in the box van? You know, it's okay, fly so I just they could sit there, we'll sit there, you know, we'll sit there. We'll get it, we'll make it all work, right? But I don't know. You know, it's just one of those things through the years you do it and then uh we were getting ready to go. And then Marshall, Marshall I don't know what Marshall wasn't doing anything. So anyway, I had an opportunity to go to work at Kawasaki at that time. So I was like, Hey chicken, I'm gonna like go back to get a real job. And uh Marshall came in and took my spot, but when I was at at the races, I was working for Kawasaki, but I'd be helping Marshall with chicken on stuff, you know. Yeah, but it's something. Yeah, that's funny. Well, so I want to dive into your next uh, foray here at Kawasaki, but we're going to take a quick break. This is your TLD timeout. Stick around. We'll be right back with more Ron Even. There's a new product on the market that's going to help you with your riding and racing, and it's Elevate Action Sports. If you've not yet gone and checked it out at ElevateActionSports.com. It's a collective of riding coaches, the likes of which has never been put together. Grant Langston, Ryan Hughes, Jeff Emick, Johnny Campbell, and myself, David Pingree, bringing all of our years of experience in professional racing to one place with professionally produced videos and all kinds of supporting staff to help you with your mental side of racing, your physical side, your bike setup, your bike maintenance. We cover it all. Get to Elevate Action Sports right now and join the community. There's a reason every AMA championship in the past decade was won on Dunlop tires. They are the best. Choose the best performing tire and a brand that has never wavered in their support of our sport. Choose Dunlop. Pro Circuit. 
Pro Circuit products are designed with one goal in mind, winning. Through passion and hard work, Pro Circuit has operated the most successful 250 team in the history of the sport. They use that same formula when developing exhaust, engine, and suspension parts for every brand. When only the highest level of performance is acceptable, trust Pro Circuit. Since 2009, Seat Concepts has been dedicated to making the best aftermarket seats. More comfort, more grip, more riding. For 10 years, we've continued to raise the bar. Innovation and American craftsmanship make Seat Concepts the world-leading manufacturer of power sports seats. Something from nothing. That's what Nihilo Concepts is about. It starts with a spark, an idea, a concept, which leads to a design and finishes with engineered excellence with the highest quality products created with durability in mind. All our products are made in the USA at our state-of-the-art facility in Stewart, Florida. Whether you are a weekend warrior, ride for fun, or at the highest level of competition, Nihilo Concepts offers innovative titanium, aluminum, and carbon fiber parts for your dirt bike. We offer a wide variety of products that you can customize to your liking. Browse our site for foot pegs, brake tips, engine components, specialty tools, frame grip tape, lever grips, carbon fiber components, motor stands, our secondary on-switch plus much more. Head to NihiloConcepts.com and see for yourself why factory teams like Red Bull KTM, Rockstar Husqvarna, Troy Lee Designs Gas Gas, Orange Brigade, Club MX, KLM Gas Gas, and some of the fastest riders in the world choose Nihilo Concepts. Specialized Bicycles. Specialized leads the way in the world of bicycling. Whether it's cross-country racing, downhill, e-bikes, enduro, road, gravel, dual slalom, dirt jumping, or all mountain bikes that do it all, Specialized has the perfect ride for you. The brand is synonymous with engineering excellence and innovation that steers the industry. Visit your local Specialized dealer for a test ride and see just how good Specialized products are. With a rich history in motocross, ProX has been dedicated to supplying quality components since 1975. Whether you're rebuilding an engine or just need a new chain, ProX Racing Parts aims to bridge the gap between OE quality and affordability. ProX has over 9,000 part numbers and over 60 different product types that are manufactured by highly reputable or even OEM suppliers and are offered at affordable prices to help keep riders on the bike instead of in the garage. Visit ProX.com to search parts for your bike or check them out at your favorite online or local dealer. Audio jump. The guys are just breaking in their race bikes, which will leave on the semi this Saturday to go to the first Supercross for our coast in Orlando. Uh, so the guys are just be goofing off a little bit, do some cool photos, do some cool videos. When you go racing, you want to do well, but a big key is keeping the bikes on the track. That's why we chose to work with Motul. Expectations coming in as a rookie is just to try and get my feet wet and uh, honestly just send it, see where I end up and uh, do my best out there, but just ride aggressive and ride like myself in practice and I uh, should have a good time. 
challenges of this sport, I believe, is just simply staying healthy. Uh, with how fast we're going um, and what we're doing, your margin for mistake is really, really small. Stay sick. If you have little rippers, then you have had to have seen Stay Sick Bikes by now. We have created bike and experiences that allow kids to develop sooner and empower them to find their own ride. From learning to ride to sharpening skills, the Stay Sick promise is accelerated growth. Whatever path your family chooses, it's going to be the ride of your life. Stay Sick Stability Cycles. I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Welcome back, everybody. That was the Troily Designs timeout. If you've not been over to TroilyDesigns.com, they've got all of their new GP line out, SE line, uh, some, some very cool gear that's uh, inspired from the race team. Also, if you're an off-roader, their full scout line of off-road gear, jackets, pants, uh, very, very cool stuff. Brand new collaboration with Alpine Stars on a TLD boot. So always cool things coming in from those guys over there. Check out TroilyDesigns.com. Um, Slice, as we get back into your career here in 94, uh, you mentioned you'd gotten plugged in with Kawasaki. And this is kind of where I really remember meeting you. I remember seeing you with Chicken because I was a privateer at the time. But this is where I got to actually work with you the first time. Uh, you took a role with, with Kawasaki, sort of in charge of the Team Green program, which Mitch's team fell under. Right. Well, I first I started, uh, Mark Johnson was the manager for Team Green. There was basically two groups there, off-road and amateur motocross. Okay. So I started working with Mark at Team Green and the amateur motocross side of things. Obviously, that's where I kind of had most of my experience. And uh, what a learning curve that was. I mean, what a phenomenal program that they had already established, starting with Bruce Sternstrom, uh, or Jim Jordan, Bruce Sternstrom, and then Mark. And... Uh, the first year, I, I really was introduced to so many talented riders from, you know, six years up to 50 years up in yeah. fits, right? And uh, after one year, Mark moved on to some IRL stuff, and I was able to take over the role as, the, as team manager. And part of that was being a liaison and, and organizing the things with Pro Circuit. Uh, you didn't come through Team Green, but a number of Mitch's riders had come through the Team Green program, which yeah. really helped. Team Green kit riders because they knew that was kind of their best opportunity to make it into the pro ranks. Yep. Yeah, and and I feel like Team Green um, was sort of a step ahead of everyone in terms of that amateur program. The earliest races I was going to, amateur races, would have been like the World Mini, Ponca City back in 85, 86. And man, Team Green was like a village. You know, that big inflatable thumb and like the pits were just impressive. You know, that was the spot to try to get to as an amateur kid. And, and, uh, once they plugged in that, that that was a pipeline to Mitch's. Yeah. I mean, it made it even more valuable. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think at that point, all bikes were competitive. One of the, I think one of the easiest things that helped us to introduce kids to Kawasaki was a KX60 because there really wasn't anything else. And, yeah. you know, they worked, uh, you know, with the Coombses, uh, was MX Sports, and uh, and then you have the AMA for the uh, the U.S. Con or the Congress, I think it's called. You know, introducing what classes and things to do, and so we were really instrumental in working with the AMA to 
find different levels for people to in riders to transition from age and displacement in a competitive way so it keep them enthused yeah because there's if it's the first time you went to an amateur race and all of a sudden you're thrown in with the with the the top a riders you're like dad and mom's gonna go hey what are we doing we're not even, we're we're not even in a hunt yeah um so building that transition and understanding what the rules were for AMA for amateur competition. And one of the things I quickly found out is that just like in stick and ball sports, six months makes a huge difference. So if you're, you know, the age of 12 to 12 and a half, it, it you know, your learning curve could be, and the way you grow may be substantial, right? So all of a sudden you're riding a, a KX80 and then I need a, I need a big wheel, you know, okay, yeah. see, and a 125 is too big. So understanding all that and, and knowing that you're going to contract a, a rider uh, and the, the their goal for them is to be successful at Loretta Lynn's in August. It's really, and then you make the transition after that, right? All the other amateur events, whether it's World Mini or, um, you know, Mini-O's Mini or GNC's and all these other ones, they're all kind of contingent. They all go around. Even Paca was like that. Paca was the place at first, and then Loretta stepped in and kind of took over that role. <clears throat> but most of the time, you know, the the riders we would spend talking to the parents because I mean they were the the, the voice of that, right? Yeah, it would be the the ones. All the riders, all they wanted to do, they're just kids. They just want to ride. Yeah, you know. And so, uh. But I, I sure had the opportunity to work with some great riders, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It you know, it didn't really strike me till right now, but you know, I feel like these other manufacturers were missing that link, right? Like you'd get them started on a PW. How many how many people started on a PW Yamaha? Pretty much all of them. But then they only made a sixty for a couple of years. Uh and then you'd you'd kept you'd start them out on a PW and then lose them to probably Kawasaki. Right, and then you had to try to win them back on the 80. Seems like a, a hole in their program. Interesting is that, I mean, Yamaha Competitional Support used to be really the pinnacle, I think, uh, early in the Paca City days, right? In the early 80s, mid-80s. And then the way I understand it is that Kawasaki really was only going to be a pilot program, which has now gone over 30 years, is I think where it's at, right? The Team Green, it, the team green program. But it was so successful in what it did to introduce people to the Kawasaki brand and uh, and in our industry just like any industry people are, are somewhat loyal if you if you have good luck with a with a, a Kawasaki KX125 and you need something for your farm a mule or a side-by-side or a jet skier you know every brand makes every product there is out there right so you know you go there and you'd see that okay these people they've got three or four Kawasaki's, you know, in their trailer, they also got a mule. They've got this, yeah. they got a Kawasaki generator. They got, they, so it just helps promote the brand. Of course. Yeah. Um, one of the t- challenges that we had was sometimes marketing people don't see, in my view, don't see the big picture of that. Let's just say you're riding a KX60 ping. So how many does that take to be competitive for the whole year? Three at a minimum, right? And for Loretta's, you got a stock and a mod class. And so what's dad going to do? He's going to lay down more money to have a brand new fresh stock bike. Yeah. So, I mean, through the course of the year, you may go through, let's just say four KX60s. 
our the marketing people didn't really they just said we don't make enough money on a kx60 we make a lot of money on a cruising and uh myself i would be going to bat and going this is what we just talked about it's just not one kx60 right and the other is that so they buy that kawasaki cruiser where are they going next that thing's just going to sit in a garage for the most part Right. You're not burning through parts on that where a KX60 kid is coming in for pistons and clutches. And and, and as soon as he gets through with Loretta Lynn's and if he's old enough and big enough, he's moving to the 80 class, you know? And so that's, okay, sell all those KX60s. We now need three or four KX85s or 80s, whatever it is, you know? And so, and then, I mean, we were constantly battling. So we owned that class 100% for a number of years. Then all of a sudden, KTM, like, hey, that's a market, and that's what KTM's good at. They'd go, hey, we, there's a void. We can, that KX60's now 10 years old, right? It's old, and no change. We haven't even changed graphics on it. That thing got water-cooled in 1985, and, I mean, it went decades and decades without really changing. Right, correct. And that was our argument. It's like our, I remember I did a study one time, even the same thing is in, at Team Green, our, our desert program was phenomenal. I mean, Baja 1000, Hare and Hounds, all the championships that they won. Yeah. But just because the, the KX500, it was like 13 years old. I mean, it was long, long in tooth, yeah. you know? And we're going, well, we don't sell, we're not selling enough to spend the money and, and development costs is really, really expensive for manufacturers. And my, my point is that, well, why should you buy a new one? Because it's the same, you know, it's the thing. I'm going to just go to first thing I'm going to do and buy, guy buys a bike, go to Pro Circuit or FMF and buy a pipe, right? Go get bar, rental or whatever it is. This, this, graphics, all that stuff. If you had a good bike with those components on it, similar to what KTM did in the early 2000s, right? They built a bike ready to race. It's already got those parts on it. Yeah. You know, so working hand in hand and, and working with, our our R and D group and production group was always a challenge, and I, you know it's the same thing. Is that you're a dirt bike guy? You're like, we need, we need, we need, we need. On the other side of the, you know, the the aisle there, the the street people are going, we need, we need, we need. And then you got the adventure bikes coming out. And this and the manufacturers R and D group is only this big. They can't do it all, right? And that's kind of what happens. And I think. And a parent, and that is that part of why the the three to four year cycle. It's like okay, we're going to work on motocross, then kind of trace that out for four years. Okay, now we can spend these years. Let's work on the street stuff. They do. I mean, it, it's and it's some products are the world or a worldwide market, right? So you, you got to understand the rules and the regulations for all that stuff. And so that's why we would really try to communicate with the AMA and the Coombses on the rules and the parameters for the amateur races, because that was our responsibility. So I want, if you're this age or this rider ability, we want to give you the best tool possible so you can succeed. And as a mom and dad, it just like, if you have kids that play baseball, you know, junior hits the ball, and then all of a sudden there's an aluminum bat. It's not, it's not junior, it's the bat. So we're going to buy him that new bat. And then it's a carbon fiber bat, right? I mean, it's nonstop. And then you, know, you got these shoes, you got those shoes, you got that glove. It, you know, it, it's, it's, it's expensive. So is racing, right? So, 
but I understand that. I mean, you're only going to go to Loretta's in the in the 12 to 13 year old class for two years. And if you're trying to get a ride with Kawasaki or one of the other brands out there, the only way you're going to get notice is results. So I got to give my kid the best opportunity to do that. And that's just kind of how the whole system works. Yeah. Well, they were definitely ahead of their time. Yamaha's got the blue crew now. Suzuki's got the RM Army. So they've kind of all tried to do their own thing. But I think KTM, the Orange Brigade, has really done a good job of mimicking what Kawasaki did. Yamaha's doing a great job with the Blue Crew. Uh, but there's still, like I said, there's KTM's the only one building a 60. They're building like a progression of, okay, you got this little electric bike onto the 65, onto the 85, onto the 105, onto the, you know, 125. Um, well, just think of the transition that there was when all of a sudden you're a young rider and you're on a big wheel 100 or a, an 85 and you got a transition to a 250F. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. I've pushed for a long, I mean, I always am chirping, hey, we need to keep 125s around just if nothing else for that to let the guys have a year on 125 before they jump on a Toyota t bed. It's, it's just like anything. If you, you just taking somebody out here to ride a Glen Helen or something, if first in, their first ride is intimidating to them, they're going to be reluctant to want to continue to do yep. that, right? That's where you always say, well, just put your feet on the ground, you know, get your feet on the ground. And okay, now we can, let's look at the striders and stuff, right? Yeah. It is feet on the ground, pedal. Oh, this, this Stasic thing to me is one of the, the best investments into the future of our sport. Cause you got kids, the minute they can walk, they're learning how to work a throttle, right? And avoiding the, the, uh, what the, the whiskey throttle scenarios we'd normally see when somebody starts on a bigger bike and just goes and straight into a wall or, right. you know, fence. Um, you, you were there at Team Green, so 94 to 01, pretty good span. Uh, that was during, like, a, a lot of stuff that happened at Kawasaki, a lot of uh, race wins and championships for Mitch, but also uh, off-road side as well. Um, Danny Hamill, you were there when he was... Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I was there when Danny got hit by a car in the ball 500 that was a year. And, uh, you know, Mark Johnson was really instrumental in, in getting Baja back on board with Kawasaki. I mean, they had Danny Laporte, Larry Rosler, Ted Honeycutt, Ty Davis, Danny Hamill. I mean, they had to who, Larry Rosler, they had to who's who's yeah. of desert racing right in their product, right? But Mark loved Baja. I mean, uh, I had already kind of my had my fill of Baja because I had done it for a couple of years at, Cal at at Yamaha. But you know, I was on board. I was part of it, and when I was there, we did it. And uh, you know, we had one. Mark left, and then I was then I moved into being the chase person in the in the helicopter, right? And we had lost Danny, and that really was that, that hurt the whole program. And uh, obviously, it was a great loss. But once I was able to fly in a helicopter, and I saw the dangers that were presented to our guys, I, I came back, and it's like you know everything you do has a there's a gain, a reward, and a risk. Yeah. And if the risk outweighs the reward, then what are we really trying to do? What's the what are we going to accomplish? Right. So 
Kawasaki had won nine Ball Hall 1000s in a row, 10 Ball Hall 500s in a row, a number of the San Felipe races. And after I flew in that helicopter twice, I came back and I told our management at Kawasaki, it's like, we don't need to do this anymore. Like we, we really, we need to race off road, but we need to race in a more controlled environment that, uh, what were you seeing? I saw, I mean, well, we would have a helicopter and, and I coordinated it with the Honda guys too, because they had a chase helicopter. But when you have two riders and sometimes they're a minute or so apart, right? So they would pre-run all week. And so they understood and it's amazing how fast they go in a motorcycle. Yeah, if you if people are familiar with Baja, I mean, it is. You are a hundred miles an hour across terrain. You you've pre-ran, but that can change very easily. Well, what happens? You pre-ran it, and then the night before, the locals decide to put a booby trap in. Yeah, and so if you've ridden in a desert, sometimes the haze and the line of sight gets a little distorted, right? So you're riding this fast, and all of a sudden, there's a booby trap, right? So. Uh, the first time I remember coming out of Ensenada, and I see, you it's easy to pick because there's all of a sudden, you're in the middle of nowhere, and there's all of a sudden a bunch of locals hanging out. Like, there's no reason to hang out other than you guys have done something. So they would create a booby trap of one means or another. So we would come and hover, and I had the same, we had a relationship with the Honda guys who's ever in front. If there's hover, and we had, then we, we then, uh, have radios to control to the riders too, right? Before we weren't allowed to do that, but it's like, this has to happen. So we would sit there and hover. So they're coming up. They know something's up, right? So you would, the challenge that I had was these guys went through that booby trap, made it through there successfully or continued on the road. Now you got about at that point early in the race, there might be a minute gap. So you're still there waiting for these guys to come to tell them your second team, What's around that? Meanwhile, yeah. You don't know. You know, so the whole time you're almost panicking. It's like, oh shit, I got to get over there. What are we going to do? And the same thing with the Honda guys. Like we'd radio to them, say, hey, mile marker, this or whatever. Tell your guys or be there. This is, be aware of that stuff, right? So once you see all that stuff and the other is that when I, you know, I would pre-run with those guys and not even close to going as fast as those guys. But there's so many locals down there that aren't even aware that there is a race going to happen. And you're going through a sand wash very fast. And then there's crossroads, like all through. And this guy's got his goats and he's on his truck and he's just putting along. Uh, you know, you're, it's an accident waiting to happen. Yeah. You know, and then the other is that, you know, if something happens, we got to get this person back to getting taken care of. And... It's just like, again, I understand it. it. It's a, it's, it's exciting. I just, they just did, I went, some guys went down, they just did the uh, San Felipe 250 and they come back and they're telling me all the stories about the stuff. And that's part of it. It's, and it's, it's a, it's, it's challenging and a risk almost for all your chase people too. Cause yeah. you know, Kawasaki, we had a pit program, you know, and there may be 20 pits in a, in a ball 1000, if it's a point to point. And so we're sending people down in all these remote locations or sometimes they're easy to get to, sometimes not. But just getting in and out of those things is sometimes a challenge. Yeah, and dangerous. So we we talked to our management. KHI wanted us to race it. They were saying, let's just race and win 10 Baja 
1,000s and then we can call it quit. And I was like, it doesn't matter. We're the only ones that's promoting this. I may be wrong, but that's my thought at that time. I said, but Casey Folks is starting a Best of the Desert series, you know, doing a Reno to Vegas, uh, Perump 200, uh, there's four or five races that they put on, but it's a little bit more controlled environment. And if we got a helicopter there or somebody gets injured, there's a hospital yeah. in Perump. There's a hospital at Reno, you know. Well, yeah, you you crash at 100 miles an hour, it's going to be traumatic injuries. You need to be to a trauma center. People don't realize, they don't factor that in. Like, I, when I was riding and racing, I never thought about glamis. I never thought of the repercussions, right? And now, as a paramedic, well, I understand that that golden hour from the time something big happens, you have about an hour until your body will can't compensate anymore, depending on what it is, right? If you're in Mexico, you think you're going to get from the ground to a trauma center in an hour? Uh, probably not. You know, maybe to some crappy Mexican hospital, but yeah. good luck. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, Larry Rosser drives a trophy truck now, you know, I mean, those things are amazing, the suspense, but they can hit stuff and you got a roll cage yeah. and everything else, just like NASCAR or anything else, right? Yeah, yeah. And a motorcycle, you're pretty vulnerable, right? And the other is that you could be, you know, it's a, it's basically generally, we would set up pits about 50 miles in between, you know, 50 miles span. So Somewhere in there, you had radio, and you'd say, hey, did, uh, you know, did Ping come through at checkpoint two? Yeah, he came through. Okay. We're suspecting that you're going to come through. The time frame is this much. All of a sudden, it's like, where's Ping? Did he break down? Did he do this? And then, and desert racers are, are really, really good at, if somebody does fall, they stop. Mm -hmm. The race is not that important. They'll stop. Ping, you Okay. Okay. I'm going, I'll tell them at the next pit where you're at. They'll come back and get you to just hang loose, right? But I, I don't, I mean, for the guys who do it, the thrill, the excitement, I understand that. But as a, like, uh, as a manager and being responsible for all those guys, it can happen anywhere, right? But it, there's more chance. Yeah, you start to look at the, like you said, risk versus reward. It's like, this isn't making sense. Yeah. yeah. And uh, again, uh, the there's some great races in the United States. I mean, look at the car and the things that happen. And it, it's like, those guys are warriors. They want to do it. I understand it, but I just got to the point where it's like, I'd rather put our efforts someplace. In. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never heard anybody really vocalize that. I've thought that for years. Like, this is insane. It's insane that we send our guys into that um, just because of, what you don't know, you know, there, there's so much, like you said, uh, we can kind of cordon off an area of the desert here for a, a local desert race and make sure like kind of keep those unexpected things to a minimum, right? Down there, it's a, it's a free for all. Yeah. I mean, and the, it used to be when I first went down there, like with Yamaha and stuff, you know, the Ensenada in the city was this big, right? Well, just like everything, it's getting bigger. So you had this area that you really like, hey, LR, take it easy through here because you never know what's going to happen, right? But once you get out here in the world, in the in the in the desolate desert, you're probably okay, right? Your 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 victim is you're going to be you yourself, yeah, you know, or self-induced. But you, I mean, the people that they like, they just want to stand right along the side of the track. You know, but it used to be this big. Now it's this big. And then San Felipe's, it's grown, you know, so yeah. it's around here. 
every place you go, the the cities get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the the little barriers, just like you were talking about when we got here, you know, I used to be able to go riding out of my out of my house. Now I can't. Yeah. Right. So, so between Danny Hamill and Caselli, you think we would have learned? Like more people would have kind of woken up to what you're saying, but it, it sure doesn't seem like it. People well, are gung ho. They do. I mean, Kurtz was a unique. And he kind of, I think they suspect he, an animal, he had an animal, you know, for Danny had a off-duty police officer right in the middle of town. And Kurt was out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but as a, there's risk when you're on a supercross track, Ping. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And you're, you're a racer. Racer at heart, don't think about it. Baseball players, ball's coming 100 mile an hour at you now. You know, if it hits you, it could kill you. I don't think that. Yeah. They're like, yeah, I'm prepared. I mean, that's just part, look at any, I mean, all I think that we as team managers and we just have to minimize the risk. There always, there's always going to be risk. Yeah. No matter what. But control what you can control. Yeah. And down there, there's so much you yeah. can't control. Well, we said like, we carried a trauma nurse with us. Oh, did you? Whether it was at, whether it was at Kawasaki in the, in our, in our, <clears throat> And our helicopter was the pilot, myself, and a trauma nurse. So we we did that. This was even before you know, Danny's incident. Mark instituted that. It's like, okay, we're got we we're doing everything we can on our side to keep you yeah. know to do that. And and that's that's good, right? But still, if you're bleeding internally, definitive cares of the hospital, yeah. right? You you need right. surgery. You know, a medic or a nurse can keep you alive a little longer, but no, still got to get to a trauma center. Without then, the other thing is that at dusk, all helicopters got to park, right? So now you're out in a you're out in a chase vehicle, trying to run down the side of the road to stay stay up with your guy. Yeah, it, it's sketchy. But I, I again, I mean, it's still still pretty healthy. So what what happened with Danny that this guy pulled out into the road? Yeah, we were only right out in Sonata. We were just, there was two of our groups, two chase teams. We used to divide it up like two chase groups, right? Would go, let's just say, group team one and team two. No depth, just where they started, right? And so we would go and we would take care of all their wheel changes and everything. And we were just standing outside, outside, outside of Ensenada. And, you know, Danny had just come by me and just gave me the thumbs up and it's like going in probably 150 yards in front of them and a off-duty police officer didn't see him just cut in front and there was no speed limits there either i mean so they're just flat out 100 right yeah. i mean that's how that's how race desert racers are they're flat yeah. out yeah and we didn't know it at the time and we were doing everything we could to keep him alive but he had set up, severed his aorta, and uh, uh, the good and bad is he probably didn't feel anything. You know, that's, if there's anything yeah. about dying, maybe that's the best way. But Roger Hamill and, and, and Mrs. Hamill, I mean. Were they there? They were at, they were there, oh. present, right? Okay. We, and then we had radioed for SCORE helicopter to come in, and their doctors came up, and they took him to Ensenada Hospital, and they pronounced him he had passed away. Uh, heavy yeah and he was like such a nice guy I'd only met him a couple he's a young guy 
but I, I had been over there. There was an area by San Felipe pre-running with those guys, you know, and they were like, hey, Slice, get over here, watch how fast we go. You know, they just love to go fast. And Danny was, a, in a sense, a big kid, and he, you know, he could muscle that KS500. Yeah. Right? I mean, he fast. Yeah. So I remember, uh, I think it was at Vegas in 95, we did like a little tribute to him before the opening ceremonies. You remember that? We kind of lined up in missing man formation out on the start. And uh, it was it was emotional, man. It was heavy. Yeah, he was, I mean, they lived in Boulder. Marsha is, uh, Marsha Roger Hamill. And, uh, you know, then his brother, I mean, they were all instrumental in the work series. Like, oh, I didn't know that. The work series started a couple years after that. And that was David Hamill, Marsha and Roger were really quite instrumental in putting all that together, which was really like a, a West Coast GNCC yeah. type of a format, right? And that's, uh, Kirk Caselli became really quite well-known because he had won that championship and just was still, you know, just a young guy, yeah. really. Yeah. Wow. Um, what else uh, stands out from your time there at Team Green? Well, I think that just uh, the the... The, all the different racers that I was able to work with, both off-road and motocross. And then we started, we did an, an arena cross program. We had a great, a lot of success. Was with that them. Babbitts? I'm trying to think of who that was. No, that was uh, uh, a guy from St. Louis. And then there was Craig by Kawasaki that we did something. I can't, Myers was his name. Anyway, we had, I mean, Mike Jones, Jeremy um, Buell, okay. Um, Danny Stevenson, Cliff Palmer, okay. A lot of guys. I mean, Dennis Hawthorne used to ride arena cross. Oh yeah, Hawthorne was the original coach. Yeah, he, yeah, he won championships, and he came to work for us at Team Green. A lot of good, a lot of unique people, and and parents who sacrificed. I mean, yeah, they were twenty four seven for their for the yeah, you know, yeah, no, um. You know, and then you, you got, I mean, for a number of years, Team Green, we had, we, like the rookie of the year for pro racing was a Team Green rider, you know, for almost 10 years, you know, from McGrath, Damon Huffman, Ricky, Bubba, Wyndham. Yeah, I think all Decker, maybe, did he win it too? Craig Decker? Decker, yeah. Was a Team Green know, kid for I mean, riders, and, and, you know, we were able to have, we had such support from, Kawasaki corporate that, you know, you might be the fastest guy in Temecula, but you're not racing over in at Southwick this weekend. We got to have somebody, a presence to represent yeah. us, you know, and you look at all the different classes and organize. And the hardest thing was, I think for us is at the end of the year, is that someone either didn't have the best year or was injured or something is having the us have to let them go. Because, you know, that was, in a sense, that was their dream. I mean, we'd call, and I remember being on the phone with a parent that were offering them an opportunity to ride with Team Green. I mean, it, they're like yeah. screaming and yelling, this is all right, we're on. Because, you know, all of a sudden, that's helping dad and mom financially. And all of a sudden, it says, hey, your 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 son or your daughter is being noticed. Is being noticed, right? And yeah. we did a whole bunch with, you know, with women motors, with women in motocross, I mean, we had I think a pretty 
good program and just be able to showcase how good women can be on a motorcycle. And, and Mercedes Gonzalez, right? Mercedes was there. Was Christy Sheely, D. Woods. Sue Fish, was she a team group? Sue? No, that's Susie Yamaha girl. Oh, she was young. She's like one of the first. That, okay. You're dating yourself. That's old. I am old. But yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. And um, we used to do try to try to do a lot of things. One year, I worked a program with Creative Nails, which was kind of a fun thing. Creative Nails did women's stuff. Yeah, yeah, I got you. You know about that. <laughs> uh, so usually mom, you know, at the, you think about it, Loretta Lynn, what's the focus? She had a racetrack. Yeah. Dad taking care of the bike. Dad... But moms make dinner, do clothes, make dinner, do clothes, repeat, right? Yeah. For five, six days. So on a setup day, whatever it was, months, Monday, I guess it was, we brought in about eight um, manicurists and stuff. And we made an offer. We had them make all these team green colors, you know, greens and silvers and blacks and purples. And so all the team green moms were able to come in and get the fingernails done oh, that's and cool. kind of make them feel good, you know, yeah. so it's kind of a nice thing. And they're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Okay. Now back to making dinner. Yeah. Laundry. Water dinner. Just, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, so many, I mean, you could see, I always looked at it as that you see the ability on a kid on a 60 or an 80 and you essentially you can almost say this individual's got potential yeah as long as they keep everything going yeah in yeah you can kind of see it right um okay so take me through your next uh your next thing was for two years you were at ktm and this is where you were my manager at ktm red bull ktm 2002 um we had support i think four years oh i know two oh that's a motocross super two with motocross supercross yeah yeah well i was uh interesting how did you get there? Did you go to did you go out to meet with Sal? No, I didn't okay. meet with Sal. Okay, uh, Guy Cooper called me and said he was a he was riding KTM's, I think, or was that a KTM dealer? I don't know what Cooper's role was. Okay, but he said he was talking to Rod Bush, who was the president of KTM USA, and Rod had asked him they wanted they wanted to put Sal in another role, and and so it's like okay, we're gonna we want to find somebody to replace Salvarage. So Cooper had told Rod that I was like the best team manager ever because we won a championship, I guess, right? So Rod called me and said, hey, Heben, you uh, you know, this is what we want to do. We're going to do the Red Bulls Supercross team. We got only 125. You interested? And I, at Kawasaki, I'd been there in like nine and a half years. I really wasn't looking, but I, the, the, the discussion we had earlier about production bikes, I sensed that Kawasaki was not going to be continued to be aggressive in the production of competitive off-road bikes. And that kind of frustrated me. And it's like, come on, you guys, see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, this is, these help sell everything and recognize the brand. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, let's, let's see what we can do. So I talked to Kurt Nickel and from Europe. And I talked to Stephen Pierre, the, the owner of KTM. So I said, okay. So at that point, KTM was down in, in El Cajal, right? And I walked in there. The first day I walked in there and I was like, this, this was a mistake. <laughs> you remember that shop? 
I went in and had to sign my contract in 01, the year before. So it was maybe even worse. And I remember everything and oh boy. I walked in and I was like, Salvarage, what is this? Because I race shop, you know, you know, sell it is, right? And I'm like, this is bad. This is not, <laughs> this is not what I thought at all. Shame on me for not coming. Do you know, do you know what I remember uh, the most from my meeting in there? Like uh, other than being completely underwhelmed with the situation, the setup is so goes, look, look how organized they have. And he's showing me all the icons he has on his desktop. It's like a, a two screen computer, right? Which at the time was pretty high end. And he's showing me how many icons he has. Like, okay, yeah, cool. Anyway, back to the bikes and like, you know, things that matter to me, you know, and I'm like, what have I done? It was just, uh, it reminded me because I'll go back a little bit. When I was at Suzuki, Tosh and Bob Hanna come to me and they say, hey, we want to hire Kordowski next year from Honda, right? Okay. And Suzuki had no race shop. We, we had no, like, and I had been at, I knew what Honda had, right? So they're Tosh is like, hey, why don't you invite Mike Kordowski to come to Suzuki? And I was like, Tosh, do you want to hire this guy or not? And he's like, yeah. I go, if he walks in here and I got to take him back to there where there is no race shop. He's not coming. He's not, <laughs> he is. I don't care how much we pay him. He's not signing. There's no way. We don't have a race shop. We don't have this. We don't have that. We don't have that. It's like, that's, we better just sell him on something other than we got a program to support you. Right. Yeah. And so that's when I went to, when I went in the, you know, KTM, I was like, oh man, this is bad. And so I'm going down and back, and you know it's hot in there. There's no air. It's you know like a sweat box, El Cajon, the blast furnace. So I go home, and my boss, the old boss at Kawasaki, Bob Moffat, he would call me all the time or send me emails and say, "Hey, even you know what do you think of this guy? What do you think of this guy? What do you think of this guy?" Right? And I'm like, "Oh, he's so good, whatever you know, blah blah blah." And I would say, "Good or bad?" Right? And he's okay. So then I, like after a week of driving down to El Cajon from Orange County, coming home, I was like, I, this, I should have not have done that. I really should have done it. So I called Bob Moffat. I was like, hey, Bob, I go, you know, you know, you keep asking me about these guys. What if I like just put my tail between my legs and I come back and beg for mercy and just say, hire me back, you know? He's like, why? What's up? And I'm going, this, this is not what I anticipated, right? He's like, hey, we generally don't do that, but I haven't found anybody to replace you. If you want, I'll go to bat for you, you know. I said, okay, let me think about it on the weekend, right? So I thought about it, talked about it with my wife and Sandy, and it's like, okay, he been, you know, you made the decision. You got to live by it. Right or wrong, you better make it work, right? So I called Bob back. I go, Bob, look, you guys didn't fire me. I did. I left on my own, right? So... I chose to do this. I got to make this work, right? So it's like, okay, so call, get going. I go, first of all, Kurt, we need a race shop. This is bullshit. We had nothing, right? And Harry Nolte's in the back in a, on a dyno, and it's, how can you do dyno work where it's 120 degrees, right? You can't. We didn't have a test track. Supercross track we had to work on. Yeah, you're right. No one, there wasn't one. So I was like, okay, here's the, here's what we got, Mr. Pierre and Kirk. We got all this stuff. We got four good riders that want to go racing, and we need to, and we got a great bike, baseline bike, right? 
So I was like, okay, let's start putting it together. So first of all, I needed a, a race shop. So I called Skinner. We built all those cabinets and all that stuff in there. Kind of had a, made a parts room called Stu Peters and Mark Peters and Jerry uh, from uh, Corona Clay. Like, I'm going to sit a piece of property, you know, just start writing checks, basically. It's like, yeah. we need a test track. We need this, all this stuff, right? And then we didn't have a, at first we didn't have a water truck. Then Brock bought that. Brock Southerns bought that army thing, but he wanted to spend more time riding around than riding in it, ride, than riding his bike, right? Yeah. But Brock would get there early and get in that. It was an army. I remember. <laughs> it was a total Brock Sellard special. It, it was. So anyway, so he did all. Was the race shop in El Cajon that whole year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the the whole first year, and then I was got part of building. They wanted to build a new a new West Coast facility, right? So they had this guy John Zolikoff. Him and I worked with Rod, and we went and got we did the whole corridor in a helicopter of locations, and they did this whole map. Where are all the motorsports? companies base right and more and more people were shifting out to the corona area right off the 15 corridor so it's like okay well all of our test tracks out here there's a you know you can get to san diego or ontario airport let's find a home right so they actually bought property on the other side of winchester is where their place was had it all done we were working on the whole layout i mean we had what i thought was an awesome layout for a facility we had standalone supercross track on the parameter on the perimeter parameter and then the race shop the all the offices were upstairs with the race shop down so people could come in and look and the race shop would be underneath right working all that stuff had it all laid out and then all of a sudden mr pierre's like no we are we're not we're not going to do nothing because the yen uh, at the end i'm sorry the euro was taking a dive and it was rather costly to to build all that stuff. So we just aced that. Then they started looking and they ended up buying or renting that place off of Winchester and De Anza, right? Yeah. So so we did that first year and part of that first year, or we did that first year, and I think we had that race shop all done because Stephen Pierre and all the Euros came over for San Diego Supercross and we had Marty came and made a barbecue cookout. Yeah, they kind of open house, but... I mean, you guys were awesome, I and mean, we had we were up against all the top dogs. You know, I mean, started out, we won two of the three Anaheims. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like wow, that's crazy. And then at at uh, Arizona, I don't know what you did. You just like, whiskey throttled it and blew it up or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's not exactly how it happened. The worst picture of my life is I'm in the back of a mule with the front end of your bike. I'm carrying you back, and you're wadded up, but. Well, Alice, walk, walk us through that incident. Well, so yeah, the weekend before, uh, I had I won A2. First American to ever win a Supercross on a KTM. Um, we were right there in the points. I want to say we were only five points off of Stewart because he had gone like, um, he crashed a bunch at the opener. I don't know how he finished. Then he won San Diego. On 250s. They were on 250Fs. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yamaha Troy guys were. Yeah. Uh, so then, well, Stewart was on a cow. Stewart was on a cow. Yeah. So I, I can't remember what he got the opener. Won the second round. Was second to me at Anaheim. 
So he was leading, but he was only by a couple of points. So I went into Phoenix, like in the hunt and I'm leading my heat, but don't, I don't know if you remember this. So they sent over a lighter piston and we never really endurance tested it. They just said, oh, the dyno, it's better. We confirmed that here. We rode with it. I think one day before we went to Phoenix, we were like, yeah, it's better. It feels lighter. It picks up quicker. And the last lap of my heat, I went to hit that triple and I heard the tone of the bike change on the takeoff. And I'm like, uh, that's not good. And then as I'm trying to panic rev, it, the skirt of the piston broke off and it's just locking up. So I'm lucky it broke in half, or I think I'd have been. Really, I'm lucky yeah. that the KTM at that time didn't have a pinch bolt on the top clamp. Cause it, it basically, I'd always said, how come we don't have a pinch bolt on here? Cause once it broke the top clamp, the whole front end fell. Yeah. Right. If it had a top clamp, you would have probably been a lot worse. Yeah. Femur or yeah. Who knows, man. So anyway. Um, yeah, that was a weird one. And I wanted, I was yelling at my mechanic. It was, uh, Tripe's little brother. Chief. Chief. I'm like, Hey, get my bike ready. I wanted to go out for the LCQ and Bodner wouldn't let me. He was like, nah, you're spitting up a little blood. It could be something internal. You got to go. Yeah. Well, at first thing we thought, you know, it just, uh, you landed in the bike snap. You, but then we realized the thing seized. It was not, you know, it just happened, but you didn't really have a choice. Well, then do you remember you guys split Billy and Brock's bikes down before the mains and they're both of their pistons had cracks. So you guys went back to the other pistons. Which stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It was a interesting season. I mean, and it just. And then I think Brock won the next round, A2, right? Yeah. 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 Brock won. And then actually they were, I think Billy was in the hunt to win A3 or you were. And I think Billy was and he crashed. Yeah. Right. Or something. But that would have been a and then historic that, event. How did, didn't GL ride the 125 outdoors that year too? Yeah. Well, GL rode 125 East Coast. Because he was racing against Chad on the 250F. That's right. Right. And so, I mean, and for those listeners, like in those days, 125s had to really time it properly to do it triple. Oh, yeah. Right. But the 250F could just automatic, right? Yeah. I mean, these guys used to wind it up. And even though the KTM was probably the fastest 125 out there, it was a lot to compete because. Yeah. I think that uh, they had Fonseca was on a 250F, right? Fonseca was on the West in 01. And then 02, I don't know if he ran the number one. I want to say, no, he he moved up because he had won the East already, came over in 01 and won the West Coast. So then 02 would have been, uh, it was Ramsey and um, they had Roderick Tain on it. And they had, um, I'm brain farting. But Roderick Tane was their okay. their guy on the west side. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so we did... Uh, it was a good year, you, you know. I mean, outdoors we did okay too, you know. And then I, uh, at the end of that year, we're, I'm still looking at, let's keep working on our 125 program. In like, I want to say, I don't know, it was not September, it was earlier July. I had gone, well, I'll go through this real quick. I was at Mammoth, and MC and I were playing golf. And he was saying, he's like, hey, Slice, what do you guys got going on next year? I said, well, actually, got a brand new bike, do 250. And this must have been in August or July or something. But um, so he's like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to sign with Yamaha because, you know, they're kind of 
wishy-washy on what they want to pay me this and that. And I'm going, do you really want to race? I mean, are you really wanting? Because Honda benefited from Yamaha's, let's not, not solidifying the contract for Bob Hanna, Ricky Johnson, Jeff Stan, Ronnie Lachine, because they were all bound to win championships, I believe. But they were motivated when they left Yamaha to show Yamaha that, hey, you guys should have kept me around, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking back to those days and I'm like, Jeremy, you know, if you really want to race and you think you're still competitive, and at that point it was only, you know, the three most popular guys on the track was Jeremy, Bubba, and Pastrana. Yeah. I mean, they were purely the fan favorites, right? So I say, like, hey, if you really want, I'll, I'll go to bat and see if we can't get something organized. He goes, well, I need to ride the bike. I said, for sure, because if you don't think it's competitive, we're wasting our time. So he had his bike, his practice Yamaha still, and he came down and rode on our Supercross track and then rode on, on he rode our bike for a number of times and um, kind of was like, hey, this thing's not so bad. Was it a was it like a factory bike shipped over from Europe or was this a production based? It was a, one of the product. It was like our first production type bike, right? So we had built it into a test bike. So anyway, we did all that, and it's like. I think this thing's pretty good. And he, you know, he even rode it on up on the Yamaha track. And um, so I got with Kurt and got with Rod and Mr. Pierre. And, you know, we put together a package for him. And I mean, if you can imagine it for the status that Jeremy had, all of a sudden he's going to ride a KTM. It was like huge news. Yeah. I, yeah. And then they had that Bud, they had their Bud Light deal. And then at the same time, you know, Kurt and Mr. Pierre had said, hey, we want Grant Langston and Joaquin Rodriguez. Or we Red Bull wants a 250 factory team. And they're like, I hate to say this, Grant can't ride seven Supercrosses on a 125 without getting hurt. I don't know how he's going to ride a 250. I don't think he's ready for 250. And obviously that relationship was over me, and they decided that, that Grant's going to ride 250. I said, okay. Joaquin had only ridden a Renic Joaquin had only ridden arena crosses in Portugal. So, you know, <laughs> this is good. So I got this and then you left, I think, and they brought in Metcalf. All the riders they had was dictated by somebody else, right? Mm. They would just go, this is who you got. This is who you got. This is who you got. Mm. Okay, so. So it's like, okay, so that's the same year we had that World Supercross program. So I'm at officer at home i get a call jeremy's at the supercross track jeremy crashes dislocates his hip kind of a miscue with our guys with something on a motorcycle to cause that to happen and now oh really it was like a like jetty as a blank kind of a anyway it it shouldn't have ever happened but it happened anyway so jeremy's never really had any major injuries so him, Jeremy, they sort all that out. Jeremy goes to a race in, in, in Europe someplace. Uh, him and Jimmy Button collide in midair. Jeremy hits the turf, concussion. So now Jeremy just got married, had a dislocated hip, and has a concussion. You know, three new things that he's all new to experience, right? Yeah. Not good. Well, one good. Anyway, <laughs> I hope. So we go to those races in Europe. At all, I had to build, we had to build a semi, and I had to do testing with what came. And we were constantly 
challenging KTM, like we would go, hey, well, this is, we're having a problem with this part, right? This thing failed. And they're like, well, let's look into it. And they would, you know, instead of us being forthcoming and telling us, hey, watch out, this bottle of water is going to break, they'd wait till it broke and then say, oh, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we've seen that. We've seen that. And like, that's not, we're just not a team effort, you know, and it really was kind of frustrating. And then I had asked, this is another good one, I had asked for a s suspension guy. And we had Kaipo. Kaipo, great kid, but wasn't didn't have a big book of knowledge of suspension. He was pretty new at the time. Yeah, and we had a PDF system was, with no link, which is, oh, was its own challenging because you had spring rates that were all uh, progressive, right? So they go, okay, hey, but we're going to give you, we got a WFP factory suspension is going to be there. Perfect. Guy shows up. MC, MC's testing. Jeremy goes, hey, Slice, I need more rebound because the thing's moving around, right? And this is at our test track. And I, I go, okay. And so I won't mention a name, but anyway, so our suspension guy's like, no, you don't need more rebound. So this is earlier, I find out that our suspension, I go, what, you know, hey, What's your knowledge? You're like our guy now, right? Suspension guy. I do road race. I know. No, you're WP factory guy. What do you do? I, I've road raced real superbike. Okay. How many how many times have you seen a supercross? Oh, no. Crickets, zero. So we go supercross. Jeremy goes, hey, I need Reba. He's like, not going to do it. Got enough. So Jeremy calls me over and goes, hey, it's like, would you tell this guy what we need? So I go and tell him, I go, hey, look, this is your first time at a Supercross track. This guy's four or five times Supercross champion. If he tells you to turn the bleed all the way to zero, just do it. Yeah. Trust that he knows a little bit more than you do than him. He's like, that's not the way we do it. This is how we're going to do it now. You know, I hate to tell you that. And uh, so that was a little wow. challenge. That was, and that happened on, or, you know, Kaipo was at the point where it's been around for a year, you know, and, you know, he's kind of handcuffed because this is the, this, this, the shell answer guy for us for WP suspension. And, uh, so it was certainly a learning curve, you know, for everybody, but it's frustrating, I'd say at times, right? Yeah. It sounds like it. She's, if you're not going to listen to Jeremy, uh, yeah, I mean, if he said, this is what <laughs> I want, they can give him what he wants. Yes. Um, uh, you also, that year. Oh, three, uh, you had Rhino battling for that outdoor title. Yeah. Well, I had gotten Rhino. I got fired before that. Oh, okay. before that. Okay. Uh, let's just go to the start of 2003 Christmas Eve. Jer we did those two races in Europe and all of a sudden where Jeremy was just really good. Uh, the bike changed mysteriously between what we had been testing and what we were given to race in Europe. Right. So Skip Norfolk was Jeremy's mechanic and they're like, this is wrong. This is everything's just, it's a cluster. And no one's really anding up to say, oh, well, we changed that. You know, like you said about the pistons and stuff, you know, it's like, Hey, we're, we're all kind of in this together. Right. So anyway, Jeremy had bad luck. The whole team, Grant was, Grant really wasn't ready for 250. Joaquin was certainly yeah. ready for us. Right. Yeah. So, um, Christmas Eve, MC calls me and goes, hey, Slice, how you doing? I'm going, 
I'm good. How are we doing? Are we getting ready for Anaheim? Well, that's what I'm calling you about. I'm going to retire. Like, All right. Perfect. Christmas gift. Thank you very much. <laughs> you're like, you're going to do what? Yeah, you know, just, uh, I think I'm going to retire. Oh, my God. This is already things were, after the world rounds were kind of going downhill. I call up Kurt. Hey, this is what's happening now for Anaheim, right? So it's like, what? Well, Jeremy's retired. As of when? As of, like, just told me right today, right? So Merry Christmas to you guys, too. So anyway, so we work out a deal for Jeremy to do the parade lab and do a knack-knack over his Bud Light KTM, you know, and they pay him something and blah, blah, blah. So we got an Anaheim 1, still sorting out this new bike. I'm on the radio. I get a call. Uh, Grant's bike, he's stuck in the whoops. Oil leaking transmissions just broke out of it. Okay. Next next practice session, Joaquin through the whoops. Yeah, like, you know, they don't have they got real hard stuff the first practice. Hitting it. DNFs, like, you know, it was just horrible. So, uh, and the 125 guys were just, uh, were doing okay, but it, you know, the, the premiere for Red Bull and KTM was the 250 class, right? That's where they wanted to be. So I had to go to, we were getting ready to go to San Francisco. I don't know where we were at in the series, but none of the races were going all that great. So I had to go to, Anna, I had to go to Amherst, Ohio for a sales and marketing racing meeting, right? And I had to give a recap of where we are at and why we weren't doing good. And so we get all done and Mr. Pierre comes up and goes, Hey, even before you leave, I want to talk to you and Rod, right? Rod Bush, the president. Okay. He goes, I go, Hey, what's up? He goes, just to let you know, as of today, right now, you are no longer this or supercross manager. Okay. Just, you want to fill me in why? And he's like, just, he's like, no big deal. It's just like in soccer. In soccer, if the team doesn't do good, they get a new coach. And I, it, it didn't really go over very well. And it's like, that was bullshit because it was like, I said, Mr. Pierre, I go, in Europe, in soccer, who picks the players? Because you give me, you don't give me players that could actually be competitive. I already told you that, you know, about this, and and as good as Grant is, he's not ready for this yet. You got a bike that's just not performing. We got water. Joaquim is just fresh off the arena cross tour, you know, and you're throwing him into this lion's den. This is, and... Anyway, make a long story short, he's like, no, you know, you're not. And I had hired Dave Osterman to oversee our 125 program to allow me to focus more on the 250 program when Jeremy was there. So I had to basically go to, I had to go to uh, Phoenix and get everyone together and say, hey, look, this is what it is. And Larry Brooks is now your team manager and you're on your way, right? So getting back to all that, that was, and then later that week I got back and Rod called me and you know, it's like, hey, you know, not really, not the way I would have done it, but that's the way it is. But we don't, we want to keep you around. We would like to have you take care of all these other disciplines, everything that we do other than supercross and motocross. So then you're asking me about Rhino. Rhino, I had contracted Rhino and John Dow to help us with testing. And Rhino was going to do the outdoors and John Dow was going to do a selected amount of outdoors, obviously as good as he is over in Southwick and stuff. 
Yeah. That would have been positive for KTM. So anyway, that's how that all, that kind of went. Yeah, I didn't know that. They they definitely, um, and I don't know how it is now, but there's certainly, their communication was odd, right? Because you probably remember this, um, maybe a couple weeks before I won Anaheim that year. I had written an article about a trip I took to Austria. Uh, they have an event called Night of the Stars. You remember that? Where mm-hmm. they bring over all their riders from all, right. all over the world. And they introduce them and they do a little thing. And it was just, I wrote a, an article about my trip. Like, you know, a lot of it was very complimentary. How the, the, the brass at KTM were partying and doing burnouts. And like, it was just a very tight-knit family. You could tell that. was. I thought that was cool. But I was like, you know, I'm staying in a hotel room that's the size of my closet and my milk is warm in the morning and everybody's smoking cigarettes and the typical Europeans. Yeah. I didn't think it was, I was being funny, you know, like, yeah. you know, my writing has always been a little. If you've ever traveled to Europe, those are, those are the three elements that are, I, that are pretty standard. Pretty standard. Right? Not like I'm breaking ground with anything. And uh, someone over there was offended and told, called Kurt, I don't know if you were involved in this, and just said, we want Pingree fired for that. Well, and I went out and won Anaheim. So Kurt sat me down after that race and goes, you know, they told me I should fire you, but I think now we'll just go through Supercross. Because I had a Supercross-only deal anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I just let you know, after Supercross, we're definitely not going to bring you back. I'm like, okay, cool. So they were pissed. Yeah, there's some things. I mean, you know, there's people in our industry who bleed the color that they work for. And, you know, Selmarize, that guy is, he bleeds orange. The stuff that they have thrown. That's yeah. curry. Huh? Towards Curry? Yeah. <laughs> well, it does. I mean, but Selvaraj, I mean, he, here I am, like, he, like I say, I mean, he helped me a lot initially on what a cluster some of the stuff was. And, you know, just be patient. Yeah. And where Rod was, Rod Bush was really, really supportive. He's like, just make it happen, you know. But, and Kurt was too. It, it, but same thing, it was Mr. Pierre would say something to Kurt, didn't matter what it was. That's the, that's, that's the word. Yeah. You know, and that's just how it looks, you know? So, yeah, there's no negotiation or uh, conversation about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, when he came, he actually flew over when we signed Jeremy's contract in, in uh, Escondido. I mean, the guy's like, you know, Jeremy McGrath's like a hero to him, right? And as, as what a good businessman he is, it, it, you know, it was like, Wow, we got KTM. We have now come to this level where Jerry McGrath is riding our motorcycle for us in the premier class of, of motorsports in the United States or the world at that point. Supercross, right? So, but it was premature. He, he likes to win, you know. I mean, they had, and the others that they have, they have a lot of success. You know, like Grant won a one twenty five World Championship. It's not Supercross. I hate to say it, you know, there's apples and oranges and they're like, well, this is the setting we use. It's like, that's great. We'll, even, yeah. we'll test that when we go to Southwick. It's not what we're going to need now, you know, yeah. but anyway, they, uh, what I mean, in one sense it, it did it, it really hurt because I had put a lot of time in trying to get us organized, you know? And then it's like, but then like Rod said, okay, we got National Enduro, we got GNCC, we got the work series, we got freestyle, we got this, we got that, we got that. Can you want to oversee all that? And I'm like, I don't really have a choice, you know, at that point. So I transitioned and, you know, 
spoke to all the riders at that point, Rhino and, and John Dowd and, you know, let them carry on their way. And, um, Grant went on to win the, Grant went to win Grant the championship, that, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just, like I said, I never, nothing, I, I mean, nothing ever against Grant. I just didn't think it, it's like I talked to her, there's, you're, sometimes you're ready for it and sometimes you're not. Yeah. Like, build your confidence. Let them win a 125 championship. Well, and, and frankly, that bike wasn't ready for it. The two bit. Yeah. You wasn't even close. I mean, that's the, I had this, Roger DeCosta, this is how unique he is. I mean, when he went from, he went, I, I had a sense, I look at it and said, I really didn't have a lot of infrastructure behind me. I was trying to build it at KTM, a suspension person. Harry Nolte is a good engine person, but he was, you, you can't do 125 and 250s, right? And so it's like, but when Roger, you know, when he built that program at Suzuki, Eon, Rob, you know, uh, all the guys that had them, when they, they generated success with Ricky and Dungey and everybody else, and Roger being as smart as he is, took that whole program, you know, and it wasn't like Roger just went to KTM. Roger took that whole program yeah. to KTM. Yeah. So they're familiar with that. They're familiar with that. Now they got the only element that's not, that's different is his motorcycle. And then they went and put a link on it, which is something that everyone had been saying for a long time. And they've been successful, yeah. you know, but Roger can get that done. But Roger, to your point, he said, Ian, no, you, you, I need you. Rob Hendrickson, you have to come with, like, this won't work without you. Right. And he knew the people that were significant. Yeah, well, yeah, same thing. Dungey, you already have an established base. You got Dungey, the whole group. Okay, how's that bike? relate to what we just won the championship on to this, to that, you know, everything has its good points and bad points. Right. But I'm, I'm sure that KTM was just motivated to do whatever it's take when you got that group coming to you, because it's kind of like when Ricky, I, I look at when Ricky Carmichael went from Honda to Suzuki, if it failed, it wasn't Ricky, it was the program and the bike, right? Mm -hmm. If it succeeded, in a sense, it was Ricky and the program, right? And but they built on that to yeah. continue that success. So, how did you how did you find that next position? Um, and I and particularly talked to you about Supermoto because I um, I got into it about that time, oh six oh seven, and I had so much fun doing that. Supermoto was phenomenal. I wanted to step back and GNCC it was the same as I mean I we had. The, the rider that was probably the most special in the GNCC was Yuhal Solomon, came over from Finland. Mm. Reminded me a lot like John michelle Bill. Is that right? Very methodical, very understanding, knowing the track, the condition. I mean, GNCC is a 12-mile course, and they would ride or walk most of it the day before, you know, to kind of, and you got 300 motorcycles on a track. You got lappers. You got two and a half hours, but... You know, he won that championship that year for KTM and just was really good. And we had, you know, Mike Lafferty, it was the phenomenal enduro rider. It was just, well, I think he had won six or something. Or when I was there, we won a couple more. And Was Shane Watts part of that? Shane Watts was earlier. He okay. he was still part of my deal. Um, Robbie Jenks was there, won a national hare and hound champion. I think in one year... At KTM, we had won GNCC Championship, Hare and Hound Championship, Works Championship, National Enduro Championship, National Hare Scramble Championship. I was like, 
you know, you couldn't beat it. I mean, but that probably won a supermoto championship. Well, we won two supermoto championships, actually, too, because that was that was a really, really interesting yeah. time for KTM and the whole industry, right? I don't know that that was the following year, 2006. I can't remember. I did my first one in 2005. That was when they did the downtown Reno. Okay, then 2005 was our was the year that we won at because and it must have been was Wardy. He, I remember he was leading and then his bike stalled. And yeah, yeah, it was that was that was back to the CMC Stu Peters day that we're doing double points at the last race. That's right. So we had I had a, a bunch of. We had a bunch of supermoto riders, but Jurgen Kunzel, Kurt Nickel, Mickey, uh, the guy from New Zealand, uh, Daryl Atkinson. Uh, I can't tell you, but anyway, Jurgen was kind of in the hunt for the championship, right? The the premier class was a two fifty class, right? So we go to Reno, four fifty, right? Four, it was four fifty. Yeah. I'm sorry, Doug Henry was riding. Wasn't Doug Henry was riding right? here, but he had gotten hurt. I think it. Um... Uh, Colorado. Okay. Remember who went over the bars? Oh, so Wardy was on a Troy Lee bike, huh? Yeah. Right. So Troy's leading, or Wardy's leading the championship. Jurgen and we're in the we're in the streets, and anyway, Wardy goes off a hill and and bails. Not bad, but can't get his bike restarted. Right. So yeah. the race is going on for the main event, and Jurgen was back in like seventh or eighth. Oh, Chris Fillmore was riding too for us. Oh, yeah. So. I'm starting to put all this thing together. We don't really have radios or anything right there, but I'm trying to figure out, it's like double points if it's first base now 50 instead of 25 or whatever it was, right? And Wardy doesn't get a point. You know, we're going to win this thing by two points or something, you know, and I'm like, come on, you're in, Jurgen says he's riding, you know, and come to, you know, you're just trying to do it. I, I remember Jurgen and Kurt was on the podium too, but Wardy didn't get into the points. And I remember going to the, up to the AMA people, the scoring people, and going, where, where did Wardy finish? You know, because I already knew Jurgen had won and Kurt was third. And Fillmore was supposed to be, Fillmore was kind of in the back, but Wardy wasn't, couldn't pass Fillmore to get, anyways, the whole scenario. But uh, we ended up winning a championship like two points. And it was like, yeah, I remember, I remember Wardy and those guys being pretty bummed out. I, I bet they'd be pissed because why are you coming down in the last race of, Double points, right? But if you rode that track, how how awesome was it? It was, so, it was, there'll never be anything like that. I mean, they literally shut down a city block in downtown yeah. Reno and built a super, uh, super motor track. Yeah, no, I remember those guys talking because it rained one practice session and the manhole covers were like yeah. ice, they said. Like, do not go over the manhole covers. Yeah, that, that right-hander closest to the pits, there was a cover right in the line. Yeah. And so you had this cut in under it or swing around it yeah and then mickey ended up winning the championship he kind of <clears throat> had an aggressive move on daryl at the on the last corner you know where they went underneath the tunnel there yeah. or underneath the, the the casino right yeah anyway passed daryl on the championship so but that was i really hated to see that go away because red bull was really supportive but the racing was so unique so unique so, i mean it, and what a cool vibe too, right? It was like old motocross. We're just, we raced hard, but then it was everyone, uh, the KTM guy, what was the guy's name um, from Wisconsin there? Oh, Mitch Hansen. Yeah, he'd make 
beer brats and just yeah. everybody would hang out together. It was the funnest group of people. Yeah, I remember Jeremy came over, Ryan wrote it. We were in Axon, Virginia. But my interesting thing was every week, KTM would just show up with more guys. Like they would go, hey, just build bikes, find bikes. And like, we don't, you know, we can't. We had the Or Chambon, a world champion. I mean, came over as you had. You know, uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny, uh, uh, freestyle guy. Oh, Bart Farstum. He wrote this guy from Australia. Wrote this guy from South Africa. These Larry Pingram wrote. Chris Carr wrote. I mean, I remember we did the first race at, at Laguna Seca. Was the first round. Yeah, we had like twelve guys. And, you know, we had enough staffing to take care of like three. You know, but they're like, oh, that's right. And then it's like. He's riding a 690. He's riding a 590. He's riding this and that, you know. Oh, yeah, you guys, you can make it work. One, just wing it, right? Yeah. And then, and then they had, I mean, the X Games were unique. Yeah. Because the X Games at that point, and it was the same thing. The first, you know, you'd have McGrath and, and Chad Reed and Ben Bostrom. Pastrana. Super, yeah, Pastrana, all these guys. And it was the best. I mean, Nicky Hayden came and did it one year with us. Yeah. It was like the best of the best racers would come out and race side by side. That was, uh, I took Neil Hudson when I was at Honda. He was a world champion road race guy, right? Never rode supermoto. So we used to go to Adams once in a while. And so we had Jeremy's, we had two bikes at Honda that were Jeremy McGrath's bikes, right? His supermoto bikes. So, Josh Hayes rode for Honda. Neil rode for Honda. Tommy and Nikki. And we went to Adams Kart Track over here at Riverside. Uh -huh. Unbelievable. What the, they, I wish they had YouTube videos at that time of what, how those guys race and slid and this and that. You know, it was just, yeah. I, I don't know, even for you. I mean, it didn't take a long time to pick it up, it seemed like. No, I, it was, the interesting thing was watching how a dirt tracker or a road racer would attack a corner, right? Cause they're kind of leaning in Yeah, and all of us moto guys are foot out leaning, but you could make it work either way. And that was what was so neat about it is you just wildly different styles. And I think the one thing they screwed up on was making the X games a little too jumpy because the year Nikki came and I want to say it was 08 he ended up hurting his ankle trying to jump something because they had the full supercross rhythm lane. I was like, this is kind of yeah. And uh, I had Jurgen Kunzel and I took him to uh, the Indian cart track over here um, used to be. Oh, uh, I know. I know what you're talking about. Amar. Amar. Jurgen from Germany and little strong head, I had to say, right? So I, I brought him there and I'm, we're riding on the supermoto, the kart track and the motocross track right there. And I'm, we're getting ready for X Games. And I say, Jurgen, I got to teach you. Do you know anything about the Bubba Scrub? Right. And he's like, Bubba Scrub, you know, no. So I was like, okay, look. And I, so I like got on the bike and I'm not going fast. I just, you got to go up and, you know, do like Bubba does, right? Because Jurgen's just going, it's just like <laughs> sailing it, sailing it, flat landing it. And that hurts. That well, you got to do the public scrub. So anyway, we're teaching them how to do that. So we go when they had the X Games at, at the Home Depot Center, and they had that huge, I mean, monster step up. That that was a sketch. Only you know the Supercross guys. Yeah, I think could 
Jeremy and Reed could uh, really manage that, right? Yeah. So Jurgen on that press day, he's going up, case on top, case on bottom. I'm like, Jurgen, do you want to win this thing? You need to perfect this thing, right? He's like, okay, I got it. First lap, just up and then overjumped it, lands it, and just, just like this biggest piece of plywood goes into the skid plate and just wads himself up. He's, oh. And he's just like, that looked, that didn't, that didn't go good. And you're looking at the bike. I mean, part of the track, the plywood that they laid down is in the, is just wadded into this, you know, oh my ground into it. But yeah, that was like, those guys weren't ready for that. You know, I think Eddie Seal ate shit on that jump hard too. Yeah. I, Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, Eddie was from England. Yeah. And he read a Husky or something, I think. I think he cased that thing and, I mean, just flew to the bottom. Yeah. No, that wasn't... I think the best one they had was Ben Bostrom won it at the Reno. was really, really good. They had a house okay. in section and... But then Red Bull put a lot... Red Bull certainly supported so, that. So what, in your opinion, I know it was a multitude of things. It was the, the housing crash of 08. I think that the AMA mismanaged some funds that Red Bull had paid for a uh, supermoto that got kind of slid elsewhere. Do you remember hearing something well, about that? A little bit, but the other part about that is in 2009, 2009, the AMA sold all the rights to racing to DMG, Daytona Motor Group. Oh, that's right. Okay, so Daytona Motor Group, their main interest is, unfortunately, Daytona Motor Group main entrance through uh, Edmondson was road racing. And they certainly did the best they did they could do to run that into the ground quickly. Fortunately, Supercross had, through Live Nation, I think at that time, had a contract so they couldn't touch it. Coombs has put together a contract for the Outdoor National. MX Sports put a contract together with DMG so it's all hands-on. DMG's big interest was flat track and road racing. They owned, they owned supermoto rights and they owned hill climb rights, but there was no one really to manage it to push it forward. Mm -hmm. You know, and at that point, Maybe it's the same thing, KTM with the with the Euros and stuff. Because, you know, Honda was supporting. Troy had a nice program. And it was, and even Yamaha, uh, Mitch, Han Rips. Mitch Hansen came back with a Yamaha program with uh, uh, Doug Henry, uh, the um, guy from, the kid from Ohio won a number. Short car. That was Graves. Yeah. Yeah, that was oh, Graves. Graves. Yeah. Okay. And then Mitch ran the uh, HMC. HMC K KTM. KTM program. Right. And there was even a Cowie uh race team with uh, Robbie Horton at one point. There was a lot of, uh, there was a Husky team, uh, and I'm forgetting the kid's name, but man, yeah, it, and it, it seemed like it was really growing and then it just collapsed. Yeah, and it, you know, it really didn't take a big venue to put it all in. No. You know, where it was, but it's, that happens once in a while. Yeah, bummer. Um, okay, so from your KTM time, you went to Honda. How did that happen? Uh, you were there, and you went to the road race. Yeah, well, Chuck Miller, who I was kind of his mechanic at when he first rode Yamaha's and the Baja. Chuck rode Baja in six days and had a great career. With he went from Yamaha to Suzuki, then was at Honda and and in several different departments at Honda, and ended up uh, replacing Gary Mathers for the racing manager. He had talked to me earlier in the year about coming over to their racing program for road racing. And 
I was like, ah, oh, back and forth, back and forth. And then Rod Bush had passed away at KTM and uh, the, the, the feeling and things seemed to change a little bit where Austria was going to start dictating more and more what was going to go on in American, uh, uh, at us KTM headquarters and stuff. So I finally just put together a program with, with Chuck and, you know, it was essentially to oversee their road racing program, which was to two superbike riders, Miguel Duhamel and Jake Zemke. And then the Aryan race team, which had, um, four riders, Josh Hayes was one of them. Uh, Aaron Gobert was another one. Um, Chris Paris was one, but anyway, so anyway, that in, in October, November, 2006, I moved over back to those guys. And when I got in there, we started talking about moving forward 2007 and the Suzuki's had been dominating. I mean, Ben Spees and Matt Milladin just own road racing, right? And they got champions like Miguel and Jake and they're just, and, and Kawasaki and they're just struggling. Yamaha wasn't participating at that time. So I got there and I was like, this is good. This is Honda road racing racing at road racing in the United States was really, really strong at that point. Every manufacturer was participating, uh, other than, other than, I'm sorry, other than Yamaha at that time, but there was Ducati was in there and there was a, a big field of factory programs, right? It's like, oh, this is really good. I get there and we start talking about next year and then Chuck's like, oh, hey, uh, by the way, we're not, we're talking about going to H, they always used to go to HRC and build the bikes, like factory bikes, right? Which is pretty cool. Hey, we're not going to HRC this year. Our president, United States president, has kind of told HRC that we don't need them and we can be self-reliant and we can build our own competitive road race program here in-house in the United States. I'm like, thanks, Chuck. That's not really good, you know? Yikes. So... The biggest thing in road racing in at that time and still today is electronics, right? I mean, it's you have so many sensors on a motorcycle that really makes life for a racer a lot easier. Before you had electronics, it was, you know, Miguel Duhamel or Kenny Roberts or Eddie Lawson or who or Wayne Rainey or whoever. It was the feel of the throttle is kind of what controlled in the clutch of what you how you manipulated getting through a quarter, right? With electronics, you just come in and hold it wide open and let the brain it tells you slip ratio between front wheel and rear wheel and adjusts either through throttle opening or electronics or fuel mapping or whatever, how you're going to, how much you're going to get, right? You may be saying, I want to go wide open, but it's not going to tell you, right? And that's, it's finding the little bit of traction. And yeah. And the other part about that, electronics is only good as your electronic engineer, flat out. So we became to get tasked with like, we have to come up with a electronic package and there's a handful of electronic packages. So our, our two crew chiefs that we had there and our testing guys, and it's like, okay, let's, because the HRC one wasn't really going to be, it wasn't compatible into the, in the world that we were racing with. Right. So having, we just started trying us up and I mean, it was a painful, painful costly trial of what we're going to do because you know we finally got to the point where it's like okay this one's not working that one's not working this one's not working we've got to start going racing 
let's focus on Morelli. Let's hire a Morelli guy, like the, you know, like the shell answer guy, like, okay, Morelli guy come to the rescue. We're, we don't know what the hell we're doing. We're trying, but there's too many parameters that, yeah, uh, yeah, you just can't work with. So we, we did that. And I mean, if we weren't racing, we were testing. I mean, no matter what. And Miguel and Jake were frustrated. I mean, the Suzuki's at that time outsmarted the AMA. I have an electronic package that they couldn't disclose. You know, they, the AMA couldn't figure out how they were doing it, but it was certainly something that you could hear it on the racetrack. You could see what those guys were doing that our guys weren't able to do. You know, and that was, as a racer, I think that's pretty frustrating. You know, I mean, they're trying their hardest and, you know, Matt and Ben are just walking away out of the corners. And so anyway, we, we battled that and we, uh, you know, we've really, we failed miserably. I mean, it was, it was a tough year because we were only racing possibly for third. And it, it, for whatever reason, we what we were, we had a race in, in Utah at Miller Motorsports Park because it's high elevation and for whatever reason our bikes just were dominant we kicked ass we got we we won that race it's the only race we won all year but uh whether the elevation equalized it out i don't know but i mean we were good that that we were good that first year and did okay you know so anyway we we did that and then in uh 2000 that was for a couple years and then in 2009 when DMG bought the rights, we went to a production rule. So we had hired, uh, we had Miguel and we had Neil. No, I'm sorry. We had, first year was Neil and Miguel. And then the second year we went, to, I'm sorry, that's 2008. And in 2009, uh, we went to the production rule. Honda decided to essentially step out of racing, but we had a contract with Neil Hudson and so we went through, it was called a Corona extra team. It was with the way the bike was branded and stuff, but everything was built in house at Honda. And, and what, what happened there? Cause really that was the fall of American road racing was when Honda kind of said, we're out. Well, it wasn't really we're Honda. Out. It was really AMA. When they came in, we had a meeting with all the manufacturers after a test at Barber Motorforts Park and a head guy at AMA came in and said, factories we really don't need you we really don't need your support and you're like you know i'm just a bystander in a sense part of the program you're like what are you thinking what how can you say you don't need the manufacturers there's factory teams there's tv advertising there's support team there's contingency just to name a few things right and so ray blank uh, the head you know head of uh, VP at, I think he's VP at Honda's like, you don't need us. You don't want to play. You want to play by production rules. We want to race world Superbike. We want some continuity across the board so we can go to HRC and go build us a factory road racer that's competitive in this arena and this arena and this arena, not a one-off part that's way too expensive for world Superbike that's not legal in AMA Superbike, right? Right. So they, they did all that and Ray Black's like, we're not. We're not going to participate in that. And so actually in 2009, night it was, you know, that's when Yamaha reintroduced themselves with the new R1 into American road racing. And quite honestly, for us, 
with Neil, that was the most competitive we had ever been because the Suzuki's, Matt and Ben had gone to World Superbike on the Yamaha. So there was Matt and Tommy Hayden. They had to write a production GSXR. <clears throat> Matt did not like writing a production bike. I mean, it, you know, every his bikes had every single bell and whistle you could imagine. And he rode it to its full potential, right? The champion that he was. So, but now all of a sudden we're like, and we're actually pretty, we're like competitive, right? And so we go to Daytona and we do really well. We were right in the, on the podium and went to a test in Fontana and Neil was really good. And then Neil loved riding motocross. Neil, you know, was up at Hesperia at uh, Sunrise riding one time and on the last lap went around the track and guy fell in front of him. Neil crashed, punctured his his lung and broke his dislocated. He just jacked himself up, and unfortunately, that was the end of us for that year. Jeez. Yeah, that's uh, that's a their biggest nightmare. Like those guys do like to moto a lot of them. I see um, Hayes, Josh Hayes, all the time at the trailer. Always tossing. He let right in moto. He does. Yeah, but I mean that's unfortunately that's part. You, it's hard. You're not going to ride on the street and test and, you know, get yourself on a no. Which was amazing to me always, Ping, was how a guy could be sitting in the team room, just kind of resting, just walk out to the grid, you know, and do 180 miles an hour. You know, I mean, they just, they, like, you don't go on a supercross track at the very first lap and just, like, I'm just balls out i mean you guys can go and do triples and all that stuff right pretty easily because it's routine yeah but those guys they do it you know i mean uh my hats off to them for what they do sometimes yeah it was like you talked about earlier you're gonna look at somebody in another discipline or other professional sport and just go man you guys are nuts but it's that's what they've been doing forever uh so you spent some time at yamaha for that with bostrom um josh hayes heron cambobier J.D. Beach. Um, tell me a little bit about road racing in America. So after that incident with uh, AMA, I mean, it it died here. Yeah, it did. I mean, Yamaha did there. I compliment Yamaha and Keith McCarty and the, the group for continuing to strive, and Suzuki, Yoshimura, to keep it afloat. I mean, we were coming off with one-off events at Fontana and Sonoma, and, but there really wasn't a strong series, right? And... So you, you just had this discipline that there was still interest, but no one really behind it backing right? So come 2015, Wayne Rainey and the Grave Group, which is three other individuals, um, Richard Varner, Terry Garvis, and Chuck Ashvin, Ashvin, those guys put together this partnership to bring back road racing in the United States and looked at it. It's like, okay, Wayne's objective i believe is that they want to groom riders that they could be on competitive machines here and go anywhere or anywhere else in the world and compete so world superbike rules and our rules are very similar right okay um their junior cups or other classes are all they're all kind of in line with the big difference between us and guys on the other side of the pond is that they have spec tires of you know one brand and Pirellia. we do spec tires with dunlop and I don't think, you know, there's always a little bit of difference, right? So when you see or you hear where 
Josh Hayes or Jake Goddard or Cam went and rode a World Superbike round, and they're like, God, how come these aren't as good? Well, one, those guys have been racing on those tires all year. They're on tracks and things that they're familiar with. Right. You know, there's you're throwing a lot of variables, and also we want to be competitive. Give them a little bit of chance, you know, if yeah. you can do it. But they, those four individuals, they really have spearheaded a program with the manufacturers, even without the manufacturer's factory support, to put together competitive racing. And, and we, we, we raced last week at uh, Road Atlanta. We had six classes that participated. And in one sense, I look at it just sometimes we're doing quantity and not quality for a show. But, you know, the, the entries is healthy the, for the entertainment value is nonstop. I mean, yeah. think about it from 1230 to five o'clock, there's racing going on the track. Um, well, and, and that's kind of leading into my next question is what you're doing now, which is working for Road America, kind of VIT, VIP hospitality, that kind of stuff. So you're seeing it now and can it come back? Like, well, where, where, where do these guys want to see it go? Um, it's just a travesty that, yeah, if there is a young rider here, that's really good. We don't have a, a series that prepares him or puts him on a platform to even be noticed at World, World Superbike or MotoGP? Well, a couple of things on that. I think that we do have a transition with the way they set up from junior. They have, we actually have a program called the Ovali Cup, which is 110 or 180 cc small bikes, 12, 12 inch wheels, right? Okay. That race on shifter cart supermoto courts, right? Okay. And they have eight or 10 races a year, right? So that's just like Loretta's or PW or a 60. It's kind of getting you the feeling and the parents involved that make this is something I want to do or I want to go ride a motocross bike or play baseball, right? So there is that. And then we have a junior cup, which is a 400cc displacement that's moving people. And then, you know, the rules and things have had to change because the manufacturers aren't selling the products that they used to sell 10 years ago. I mean, if you think about it, a 600 sport bike used to be one of the best selling bikes out there. Because of insurance costs, right? That's why they made it, I believe. Yamaha, uh, Honda, Suzuki don't even make a 600 anymore. They don't even offer it to the consumers. Oh, really? Right. So now it's a 700 cc, and the, and Kawasaki makes a six. I think it's a, a 640, or I believe is what theirs is. So anyway, they've had to adjust the rules, and so. To try to keep in some imperity in the rules itself, like the 600 class, you could race an 850 Ducati and you could race a 660 this and a this and that. Josh Hayes rides a 600 R, uh, an R6, Yamaha R6, but the rules are based off of that Yamaha R6 power, performance, weight, and all that other stuff. So they adjust the rules and it's pretty competitive, you know. Hmm. Uh, super bike, there's bigger bikes, smaller bikes. Uh, and so through electronics and stuff, and this is all kind of coordinated really through World Superbike. So there's, there is uh, an organization sanctioning body that's trying to keep the playing field equal. Okay. And you have, like, we're only, a, we're American Superbike, right? Your, uh, England has a great Superbike program. Australia has a Superbike program. But then collectively, the, the premier of that is World Superbike, and then the premier of that is MotoGP. Gotcha. Where they want to go. So you can transition out, but what we're seeing because of the, I think the circuits that we go, the the way that the programs run is that we're fighting more 
Europeans that are starting to come back to race in the United States, recognizing that there's some this is some top quality racing and superbike. This is where we want to be. And no different than any other program is that you could be the best rider. If you don't have a program behind you, you're not going to succeed in road racing. It's it's expensive, um, but you got to have a good electronics person, suspension, crew chief, you know, the good support. Like uh, Petrosi was, you know, last year was phenomenal rider from on a Ducati, but he was a kind of a hit and miss. He was circuits that he was new to, even though they went and tested. But you got to have that solid group of people behind you to to understand it. The road race we just had at Rotolana track circuit is much different than when we're going to go to Barber. What information do we have to start as a baseline in Barber? It's not. It probably won't be identical. Might be similar, but maybe not identical, right? And so you only get three practice sessions. You kind of got to get queued up to be ready to go. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's that's new to this and it's exploding in popularity is the bagger racing. And you and I talked a little bit off camera about this before. Um, What's your thoughts on this? Where is this going to go? It is cool in that it's getting in other manufacturers, and I kind of look at it, uh, you know, when I watch some of these races, uh, uh, it reminds me of Happy Gilmore. You know, like they're, you're bringing in this kind of... No, that's the hooligans. <laughs> the hooligans is Happy Gilmore. <laughs> Roland Sands, I don't know what he goes, but he brings out a lot of riders, but who knows what's going to be on the track with the hooligans, but... um the baggers, you know, I mean, being a, I, I'll be, I'm not a real big fan of cruisers, you know, I never yeah. have it and just, just not. But they were kind of introduced, Rob, Rob, Rob Bidos, a guy, a guy that's really familiar with motocross and supercross, kind of had this idea. It's like, oh, we can bring these guys in. And for a couple of years, I'm going, Rob, you don't want to put a bagger on, like, that's not good, right? slice we can do this and that and all this stuff right so a couple of years ago he put together a program with wayne and talked to him they introduced him at laguna you know the the first bagger race was like the first supermoto race you had guys like ben bostrom eric bostrom and 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 flat track guy and a dirt track guy You're like i don't care i can ride a harley bagger or indian or whatever you know so they're all participating in this thing and it's subtle it became exciting and and somewhat interesting you know the only thing that right now that i'm it, it that i'm fearful of is that we're creating a package that's i think the whole spirit of the role originally was going to be let's get this harley dealership and this indian dealership local guys let's build them bikes and let them all participate you know and have a bunch of fun well now you got essentially five bikes up front that are two factory Honda or two factory Harley Davis's two factory Indians and a, a well-supported Vance and Hine team. Those are, there was a run of there. That's the race. No one they're, can keep up. They're running. They just got deeper pockets. Yeah. Right. And, uh, sometimes the racing is, I mean, it's exciting sometimes. Yeah. I think I told you, it's like we had Kyle Wyman, who is a super bike rider. He rides both at different times, but, you know, at Daytona, he did 187 miles an hour on that bike on the front straightaway, and somebody asked him in the in the in the audience, "Is like, why 
why are you going that fast? He's like, I don't really want to go that fast. It's just <laughs> the draft. That's what pulled me in, you know? And they got saddlebags. I mean, but those bikes are exotic. And, you know, some people, the demographics now of the people that are rolling in on motorcycles, there's a lot of people that two years ago you wouldn't have seen. Yeah. And a lot of bikes that you wouldn't have seen. We do a fan lap. At, at Road Atlanta, we did a fan lap where people can pay $5 or $10 and all the money goes into air fence, air fence, um, you know, just safety. There was 182 bikes that did a parade lap. And I want to say probably 60% were cruisers of some sort, you know. So in one sense, it's good. I just... How do we get a bigger depth to fill? That's up for that's up to Chuck and those guys to figure out. Wayne, they're smart guys; they'll figure it out. But um, the 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 sport is going. I mean, since COVID, camping has been through the roof because it was a way for people to get out. You know, before you had you had a, you were restricted to your house. People bought motorhomes and campers. Yeah. Okay, we're going out, and then they go out, and it's you know. Road racing is a long week. I mean, it's three days, so it's not like a supercross or motocross where it's one day you're in and out. People come in and they're camped. Yeah, ice evening, they do this, they do that, you know, and so, uh, I don't know, like, Barber Motorsports Parks is where we go next, and it's like the Disneyland of motorsports parks for us. I mean, it's it's just perfect. That's Alabama, right? Yeah, it's outside of Birmingham. Uh, where, do, where do you see motorsports going, Slice? I mean, you've been a part of this from way back. Um, you know, from original four strokes to two strokes, now we're back to four strokes. And here in California now, you can't even legally green a red stick or a dirt bike. Uh, they're talking about no internal combustion engines and motorcycles here by 2035. Or weed whackers. Yeah, of course, or weed whackers or Yeah, we uh, and you've got Honda and Yamaha shipping all of their uh, com- companies off to Georgia oh. and Florida. Uh, well, it's without changing. getting without getting into politics, which we're not going to get into. Okay. However, politics are what they are here yeah. in California, and and, uh, and that's probably why. Yeah, everything's going someplace else. I mean, the, all you got to do is look at you know read the writing on the wall. You know, I mean, that's it's pretty much what it is. I mean, there. Do you? Th- I mean, do you think we will see them completely split and be out of here, or they'll just be sort of a uh, satellite? I don't know. I can't speak for it. I mean, Honda has a a city block. You know, I mean, Honda's city block is only cars now, and their race shop, the motocross race shop, is supposed to move out to into Corona someplace. I mean, it's just there because it just happens. It's a massive facility. I mean, it, American Honda, it is a campus, right? Yeah. Uh, and for them to move up, but I you know I, the guys that in, I think they're in, uh, I don't know, someplace in Georgia, but at Kennesaw or something, but you know, that's it's the cost of doing business. Yeah. How it is, you know, American at, at Yamaha, hey, it's, it's a, it's a different world. It's not like it used to be, okay. you know, same as you were talking about Suzuki, you know, it's like, how many people do we really need to do? And, you know, since the COVID deal, a lot of people now work at home through computers and yeah, via Zoom calls and stuff like that. And I think that myself, I just think that you can't 
deny that electronics, you know, electric vehicles are, are going to move us, are going to move forward, right? And I just hate that. I think in, with technology, we almost created our own monster because years ago, you could buy a 125 for cheap, yeah, right? So I'm thinking about riding. It's cheap. What's what's a YZ450F now cost? 10 grand something? You know, so, yeah. I mean, I guess I'll go back to my son can manipulate this cell phone, everything on it like there's no tomorrow. All right. Well, first of all, it's the wrong brand, but anyway, he'll do it. I don't need all them bells and whistles. And we look at the people on on street bikes, you know, the, R, the R1. I mean, it's a limited production, and that's probably better that it's a limited production because maybe the diehard enthusiast wants to spend $20,000 or whatever it is for that bike, but the regular guy doesn't need that. The regular guy just could take an R1. Can, and what is, I mean, you started racing motorcycles because it was fun, I would take it. Yeah. You got out the first time you throw your leg over a bike, you're going, crap, this is cool. I like this. You know, I should get a helmet, goggles and all that stuff, right? Yeah. So then there's that cost. What's a pair of boots cost now? Yeah, it's a lot. Right. So anyway, what I'm saying is that in some instances, it's no difference than stick and ball sports. Uh, I mean, my kid used to play baseball. A bat was 110 bucks. Now it's 250 bucks. A pair of spikes was, you know, 30 bucks. And now there's, you know, you got to buy these. You got to buy the best shoes. So we are in a sense... I think pricing ourselves out of some of these entertainment things where people go, what's the entry fee for me to do this and have fun? And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not really aware. I mean, the, the e-bikes and like th these guys and KTM and them that are introducing, those are great because in a sense, they're more urban friendly. People don't like noise. I played pickleball. Good at it too, just to let you know. It's loud. That's why they don't like it. Yeah. Too loud. Like, you know, when you get old, you can't hear. That's why you got hearing aids, right? <laughs> so it doesn't matter. But, th I mean, there's some things that there's people who are strange. You know, what they used to accept, like listening to rock and roll, now you just want to listen to country music. I, you know, it's like, yeah. but I mean, we are in a sense creature of habits. It's like all of a sudden, you go, oh, can't do that. You know, you can't have a lawnmower. You can't have electric. Like, it's only running for an hour. Let them cut the grass and get on the it. Thought on yeah, it's interesting times for sure. And I, I I thought it was, given what's going on here in California, I mean, KTM says we are making internal combustion engines. Like, that won't stop. They've been very adamant about that. Mr. Peer did an interview with a road race organization, actually, in a while ago, where he said as much. He's like, we'll produce electric products, but we're always going to produce gas-powered motorcycles. And I was kind of like, okay, good. I, I like to hear that. Right. But you just spent $55 million on a new facility in California where they're going to allow you to sell them. You know, uh, I would love to hear a response to that from, from somebody. Yeah. Like it's just, I asked folks that have been around the industry like yourself what you think because I, it's pretty concerning to me. Yeah. I, again, I mean, I think it's the same thing is that you don't have the regulations in other, the other 49 states that we have here, right? I mean, it started years and years ago. You got to... California model, you got 49 state model. Like, really? Yeah, yeah it's like, I know. And all that stuff. So I just hear, I tell you this, I hear from a lot of folks, and I, I'm not a hater of electric. Um, I don't think it has the the environmental benefits that they want to sell us that it does. But you talked to, you know, like even James Stewart sponsoring that, um, 
a team in that electric series. He posts some people hate on it. People are not yeah. in this sport are not really accepting of. I can't tell you how many people I've heard go, if we go to electric bikes, I'm done. Can't you think of like, you look at the combustion engine has been around for over a hundred years or so, you know, and you kind of, you've worked through it. You understand it. It's, it's improved through technology, but it's still a combustion engine. If you look at electronics, I mean, or uh, electric vehicles, you know, it's still relatively new. I mean, yeah. there's still the, yeah. the issues of where do they get the raw earth to build these batteries that they need? What are they going to do when all these batteries start going belly up? I mean... There's a lot of unknowns that, you know, even they were making, you know, you're making, you know, you could buy pot legally now. 20 years from now, there may be some studies out there that said that might not be the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it, like, I'm not specialized in those areas. I would bet you Mr. Pierre, as smart as that man is, and is, is seeing what he built here in Temecula, has a pretty good understanding of if that happens, what am I going to do? Right. Right. But how could, you know, the same thing. How are you going to have a test track where you're going to have to move everything? All your Supercross test tracks are still here. I'm going to have to move everything to Florida or whatever. It's, yeah, it's, we're, we're in for some changes one way or the other. And it's it's super interesting to me. I mean, like I said, I, I rode the Alta when it was in its final stages there before it went tits up. Fun bike. It's fun. Um, I don't I don't hate on them at all. I think like this Varg that's coming out, 80 or 70 horsepower like I'm interested but there's no way it goes 40 minutes I don't care what they say not at professional rider pace right and now you got to sit there for two and a half hours and wait for it to charge up well Michael that's not a Michael is not a you ride that thing being a racer is that isn't sound a value on a racetrack absolutely right yeah so I I mean I I brought with me I am I made like the first slicer shorty silencer for Mickey's bike right because on the starting line Mickey's like hey slice I can't I need the RPM but I can't hear it yep okay I'll make you a louder silencer than the guy beside me right and going into the corner you know that you can hear the guy behind you I don't know how you can race a, a full-blown you know it's like you're on a downhill mountain bike ride but at least on that part you hear helping and puffing of the guy behind you possibly right yep. so I've never written those or understood those things, but I do know through my own experience is that sound has a value. Yeah. Right. Well, four strokes being so loud, I've started riding with earplugs. Uh, it's just kind of a new thing. A lot of guys are doing that. Uh, I see Tomac does it and quite a few of the riders. Yeah. And for me, I, I actually really enjoy it. It helps me kind of focus on just me. But exactly to your point, two days ago, I'm riding and I'm reeling around this berm and I, I, I don't hear anything. And all of a sudden, a guy pokes in, and I mean, we almost hit. I just missed his front wheel. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even hear him. Yeah. Now, if we're all on electric bikes that aren't making any noise, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, well, you're they're, they're going to have to make it have a hum or have a, you know, how when you back up a baseball, baseball yeah. cards in the spokes. Yeah, put a beer can in the, <laughs> in the deck. Um, and, you know, like the Tesla, when you back that up, it sounds like a, a spaceship or whatever. Yeah. They're going to have to make some type of, uh, auditory sound, you know, sound for safety. It's a known thing. I mean, I catch myself, you're walking through a parking lot, you don't really hear them coming through. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's stealth, right? Good and bad. Yeah. You know, for, well, interesting stuff. Um, we've, we've taken up enough of your time, man. What a, what a cool career you've been through. Uh, last question we always ask everybody is how you want to be remembered in this sport. How would you answer that? Well, that's a pretty good question, Ping. I don't know. I guess I, I, 
I hope I didn't piss too many people off, basically. <laughs> you know, but I mean, I'm, I've been fortunate to have the support of my family. And, you know, I, I'm, I've always said that I, I'm fortunate to work in, I think, one of the best industries in the world and meet some of the best people. I mean, there's camaraderie. It's like we went to the Trailblazers Museum or banquet a couple of weeks ago. I saw you there. And, you know, you see people you haven't seen for 20 years. And it's just like you talk to them like you just talked to them yesterday. Yeah. You know, and there's... There's people who have passed on and you just remember the positive things of that, of what they did or how your relationship was with them. And that's all you could ask for. I mean, that's, it's, it is a family. You know, I looked at it, I've been really fortunate. I have two families. I have my immediate family and I have my motorsports family and I look forward to seeing them both. Yeah. When I'm home for four months, I get cabin fever. I need to get out and go. I love going to Anaheim, Yeah. you know? The, you know, the, the, you see Bevo and, and, and the, these guys that you haven't seen for a long time, you know? And it's like, you don't, it's, you don't even have to reintroduce yourself, you know? Cause we're all in a sense seasoned guys. It's like, Hey, Slice, what are you doing? This yeah. and that, or whatever. You're still okay. You know, you get your hip replaced. Yeah. I got that done. You know, whatever <laughs> new yeah. parts you get replaced, you know? Now it is a, it is a bond. It's weird. Like, uh, you know, Sharon Richards, she's been my, I see her. Tomorrow, I'd give her a big hug, and she's like my moto mom, yeah. you know? Um, and there's, like, your crazy uncles and your weird in-laws and your... <laughs> right. But it's a family. Yeah, I mean, there's... It's, it's what it is. I mean, there's... And then some people, are, I think, they get... They may be genuine good people, but they're sometimes in a role that they can't essentially be a genuine good person. You know, they they got rules and boundaries, and like it or not, that's what... You have to abide yeah. by, you know, it's like, uh, you know, driving on the street. Yeah. So. Well, you sure worked with some, uh, some of the absolute best in this sport, you know, it's fun to hear all the stories of, from JMB and Jeremy and going back to RJ and Larry Rossler, man. Yeah. I want to tell you one really quick, yeah. interesting story. This is with James Stewart. I remember when I first started at Kawasaki, we had a KX60 and they had different electron, electric, elect, a different CDI, right? <laughs> And so Big James, me and Big James go like head to head, round to round, good and bad. And he'd go, hey, Mr. Ron, he'd go, Mr. Ron, he goes, Bubba's bike's like backfired, right? And so I said, and he's in Florida, I'm here at Irvine, right? So he's like, yeah, he's just speaking, we're getting ready to go to some race. And he's like, yeah, he's backfired, bah, bah, bah. And I go, all right, James, do me a favor. Like, where's your, this is no cell phones, right? This is landline. Where's, where's your test track? You know, where's Jim? He goes, it's right in the backyard. I said, okay, put your phone out there and let me hear it next time he comes around, right? You're doing jetting. Okay. The phone. Bah, 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 bah. I was like, okay. All right, James, let me tell you what I think, you know? It was just the funniest time. He's just like, you know, he wants to give, his, just like any typical dad, he wants to give his kid every opportunity to do well and yeah. if that bike needs to perform right and they're going to this local race or whatever he wants it to run right and it's a kawasaki and it's our job to make it run right right but yeah. just funny you know how it is and all those great people that you meet you know like i say and, and i think that uh, lastly i just wanted to say this that it's particularly at team green is that where you have a hundred riders right have to figure out and understand, and I always told our crew and staff that, is that Ricky Carmichael may be the fastest kid out there this weekend, but this 
kid that's coming up on a Kawasaki, he's our number one priority because to his parents and to him, we got to show him that we are going to give him everything he needs. And if he beats Ricky Carmichael on that day, so be it, right? But be genuine. Understanding is that we have to give them our utmost attention to give them the very best because when they leave out of wherever they're at and they just put everything in on a credit card, if they had a great experience, they want to do it again. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's, that's always been my philosophy. No matter what is like, let's just try to be genuine and give these people the best opportunity to do the best they can. Right. Well, I can tell you the couple of times I've worked with you, you've always been just pro. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, we try. And one of my favorite people in the industry. So thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate you taking the time, Slicer. Uh, stay tuned, everybody. We're going to be back to wrap up the show. Uh, appreciate you guys sticking around. I want to be back. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate the support. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I want to thank Ron Heben for taking the time to come in. Uh, what a cool story, cool career. He's been through so many different places and positions. And um, to me, just really cool when a guy's worked with that many legendary mechanics and managers and riders. Uh, just super interesting to me. Plus, like I said, our paths crossed a couple of different times throughout our career. So um, great guy, one of my favorites in the industry and always smiling and uh, always has a story for you. So hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, as always, please support the folks that support us. Uh, you know, Yamaha, SKDA method, Nihilo concepts, all these guys have just stepped up so big to support this show and support what we're doing. Uh, all of them. We, we appreciate them so much. So, uh, please start with them if you're in the market for any of those products. And, uh, as always stay tuned, we've got a lot more cool stuff coming. Check out our new off-road program over at whiskeythrottlemedia.com. If you are an off-road rider, you'll definitely enjoy that. And uh, we've got a lot of cool stuff lined up for that. So stay tuned. Thanks for watching. We'll see you soon. The Whiskey Throttle Show is brought to you by Yamaha. Join the Blue Crew today and take advantage of all that Yamaha has to offer, including amateur racing trackside support, awesome Yamaha contingency, Jason Rain's demos and instructional classes, and frankly, the most high-performing motorcycles available in the market today. Whether you're looking for a four-stroke, a two-stroke, a side-by-side, -side, a quad, a boat, a generator. Yamaha prides themselves on absolute top-level quality and reliability. Rev your heart with Yamaha and join the Blue Crew today. Method Race Wheels, bringing you the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road for your truck, van, sprinter, UTV, or SUV. They've been dominating the Baja 500 and 1000 and every major off-road event around the world for years with high quality and performance. They also look amazing. They come in a bunch of different styles and colors for your rig, so check them out. You can get 20% off a set of wheels using our code WHISKEYTHROTTLE. No capitals, no spaces. 20% off using our code. Check them out. Troy Lee Designs is the leader in off-road motocross apparel and style. So whether you're looking for a cool new paint job for your helmet, maybe your name and number on your helmet lettered on, you're looking for new gear, you're looking for mountain bike gear, off-road gear. They've got the brand new Scout line and GP and SE models. Troyly Designs has it all. They've been leading this industry for decades, and they're going to continue to do it. Check out TroyleyDesigns.com. SKDA is a moto graphics and seat covers company with several offices based around the globe. For too long, bikes and graphics have all looked the same. They just start to blend together. SKDA is working to change that. With super clean and unique design work, a bike with SKDA graphics stands out in a crowd and adds a touch of art to the world of moto.
Hey, we need that. SKDA prides itself on providing premium customer service both before and after the sale is made. Visit SKDA online to view the current product range and get in touch with their team to get your bike refreshed. I want to just make a, a mention here that these guys, not only is their design way outside the box, very, very cool. They'll work with you on custom things. The, the products are incredible. Okay, they'll speak for themselves. But what's really awesome, and you'll notice this the minute you order one of these, man, they give you an email saying, hey, the product's been shipped. Uh, hey, the product is here. It landed in this spot. Hey, it's coming today. Hey, your product's been delivered. They, they're just so good about staying in touch with you and letting you know where it's at. Customer service is 100%, and uh, that's just something that's rare these days. Check out SKDA. Here at the Whiskey Throttle Show, we're all about supporting brands that support our sport. And there's one tire company that has never walked away from the sport of motocross and supercross, and it's Dunlop. When times got tough and the economy took a crash, Dunlop stepped up and stayed with our sport to support it and the athletes and individuals that love it. Their MX-53 line and MX-33 lines absolutely dominate this sport. Every national championship at the pro level has been won in the last decade, and nearly every single amateur national championship at Loretta Lynn's has been won on a Dunlop. So if you're looking for high performance, you're looking for amazing quality, and you're looking to support a brand that never turns its back on our sport, there's only one choice for you, and it's Dunlop. Pro Circuit is the leader in aftermarket performance and quality. Whether you're looking for a little more horsepower out of your engine, some quality hard parts to improve the way your bike feels and looks, better handling through suspension or linkage or linkage arms, Pro Circuit is where you need to stop. It's your one-stop shop. You can go in there and get everything you need to make your motorcycle go from average to exceptional. Pro Circuit's got enough number one plates on their wall to side an entire home, and there's a reason for that. They're very, very good at what they do. Uh, the highest quality products with one goal in mind, and that's winning. Check out ProCircuit.com. Nihilo Concepts is leading the way in aftermarket hard parts. With their secondary on-switch device, something that was much needed in this sport, They've been innovating and bringing new products to market. Their latest is the new Nihilo Run-Cool Brake Pistons. They're designed to be stronger than stock and provide exceptional cooling performance with less brake drag. Most OEM calipers pistons are made from aluminum that just can't hold up to the heat and extreme demands of serious racing. When they get hot, the aluminum will distort, causing loss of hydraulic pressure and brake failure. Nihilo's Run-Cool Pistons limit the area that boiling hot hydraulic fluid is able to come in contact with the piston leaving two-thirds of the piston volume in open air with breather holes to enhance the cooling ability. It's made of a proprietary stainless blend, which is better at dissipating heat. You have issues with brake fade or brake failure, check out Nihilo Concepts among their many amazing hard parts and carbon fiber parts and titanium. Nihiloconcepts.com. Seat Concepts is the leader in motorcycle saddles. If you're looking for a new cover or a new seat entirely, Seat Concepts is the place to go. They make custom seat foams catered to your height, weight, riding ability, riding type. They also have waterproof covers and, and foams that will not break down if you ride in a lot of inclement weather. And they pride themselves on being much more comfortable than OEM or any other aftermarket company. If you're looking for a new seat or a new cover, Seat Concepts, there's nothing better. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's 
OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the Polaris RZR 800s. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the... If you've got a little Grom that's looking to get started in the motorcycle world, the best way to get them going is on a Stasic bike. They've got multiple sizes, so from your very young Groms to those who are a little more grown up, you can start them safely. They've got controls that allow you to control the speed so he can't get going too quick. They can touch the ground. There's not a lot of noise to distract them. It's the perfect way to get your child involved in motorcycling at a very young age. And if you've got a kid who's already out ripping, there's series popping up all over. For those of you in Southern California, go to www.ameminicross.com and join their local series. If you're outside of this state, contact your local track and ask them about starting a Stasic class at your local track. Get over to stasic.com and check out all they've got going on. Motul USA, uh, we, we lean hard on these lubricants to keep us uh, on the track and on the trail. And Motul has proven their quality over and over, uh, most recently with their Dakar win with Ricky Brabeck. Uh, they're sponsoring Supercross teams. They're diving into our sport again, full full throttle, and uh, we're stoked to have them on board. Amazing products, top to bottom. Motul USA, go check them out. And finally, last but not least, specialized bicycles. If you are in the market to start pedaling, this is where you want to start. Uh, they've got great entry-level bikes all the way up to the Cadillac, the new Levo um, e-bike, uh, any, anything in between, man. It doesn't matter what kind of riding you're doing. Go check out and start with Specialized. Don't waste your time on something that's going to break. The derailleur's not going to shift after a couple months. Get something quality. Uh, these guys make it. Specialized leads that industry. Thanks for watching and listening to the Whiskey Throttle Show. Be sure to like and subscribe to get notified when new shows go up. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And visit whiskeythrottlemedia.com for additional content.